This is Hardcore Podcast, Episode 3. For those who didn't check into the addendum, which is a short little thing that I released two days ago, the intro today is by Truth and Rights, featuring Zach Thorne, Homicidal, Ages of Man, Bulldoze, and of course, Eddie Leeway. I played this hardcore a few times. They got a release or two. More of a project thing. I, I listen to this in my car on the Spotify uh, playlist, and it gets me amped, and I drive like 90 miles an hour, and I just thought to change it up a bit, and the guys are gracious to let me use their song. So thank you so much, Zach and Eddie. Going into this podcast, it was difficult because this was the second podcast that I had recorded, and the tone of the podcast specifically in contrast to episode one and two is much more conversational. Possibly because I'm hanging poolside with a friend of mine who, you know, came up with over 24 years ago. And most of what I would end up working on, be it Punishment and later Shattered Realm into This Is Hardcore, was directly influenced and mentored by this person, Chris Beer. And it's kind of surreal to sit down with a friend who gave you so much. And you're sitting at a poolside eating pizza hearing the highway go by and the cicadas. And it's like, oh, fuck, we're really recording a podcast 20 years or so after you took me on my first U.S. tour. And so I got a little excited and kind of broke up from the more cool-headed. So you hear me jabber a little more, and you'll hear a little bit more of the, the stutter and everything else that comes from an excited Joe Hardcore talking to an old friend. That being said... This is still about information. This is still about explaining to people who had not come into the game when we did just how things were and to give some ideas that are still applicable even in the internet age. And there is no better person for running a band, promoting a brand, and just pushing himself to influence and inspire a generation that is dealing with the problems of a social media-dominated atmosphere tend to go back to the OG stuff, go back to the street level stuff. And Chris Beer influenced so many people that when I, I told a couple people he was next, so many people were like, dude, that's so awesome. Because yeah, I mean, he doesn't touch on it. I, I asked him, I'll kind of leave it in the story, but he could have easily been a drummer that toured full time but he chose to be just a dude from Pennsylvania with a cool-ass job and an amazing wife and an awesome family. And uh, I'll let him speak for himself on that one. Next week's episode is in queue and will come out Friday. And I've got quite a few more coming down the pike. Thanks again to Post America Podcast for all the support and the push to my boys in Broadsheet Breakdown. We're going to do something special soon amongst the three of our podcasts. I'm really excited about that. Uh, Ninja Rob podcast shouted me out, which again, it's kind of funny because that's a podcast I look forward to every week to to hear them shout us out and talk about the podcast. It's really something special. I appreciate that. Let's rock into this podcast. Chris Beer, Dysphoria, potentially one of the major factors to make so much of what I would eventually push myself to accomplish happen. And one of the best people I've ever met in my entire life. And I'm glad to still call a friend 
after 25 years. Here we go. We're talking to Chris Spear, who is the drummer for Dysphoria, Pennsylvania hardcore legend, and unsung hero of an age of hardcore where if you didn't do something yourself, nothing got done. And a huge, impactful foundation person to put everything that would eventually become this hardcore together for me, an early mentor, a lifelong uh, older brother, friend, and we're sitting poolside at his amazing house on the edge of Bucks County, at the very top of Bucks County. So thank you for coming on the show, Chris. Dude, thanks for having me. This is like exactly where I want to be right now with you. I know. uh, So despite COVID, despite the Zoom calls for a lot of these episodes, when I asked Chris, he said, hey, I really want to do this face-to-face, and I didn't know how to pull it off. And obviously, I'm still new at a lot of the stuff. So Chris broke down and hooked me up with some microphones so we can make the two-person thing happen in person. So Chris is the first in-person one we're doing because we have to have this face-to-face kind of talk. So the thing I think we should start with, which is always the best, is not how your parents made you, but like at the point where you were in some kind of school and you heard music that wasn't just your average radio, like what got you the first step in this whether it was heavy metal, whether it was this, what started getting you towards music as a kid? Well, I mean, if I go way back... Yeah, um, go as far back as you can think about yeah, music. I was saying, you know, I, I remember sitting on my dad's bed and he had a Black Sabbath record. And I used to put that on and listen to it on headphones. And I was like, it was Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And even the song, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, was like the heaviest thing ever. You know, and that was even before my time. That was like my dad's time. Yeah. But he still, that was the introduction I had to this. And I remember, you know, I, I was young, but what I, all I wanted for Christmas was a boombox so I could make my own tapes. And was, remember, his, was his records facing outwards so you could look at the label and like look at the covers or no? No. Like what drew you, you know to what? that record? Like what you drew me to that, that was the cover, definitely. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was different. You know, he had a lot of like Grateful Dead and stuff like that. So this was definitely different. Than any of that stuff, and it was definitely the cover that drew it, drew me to it. Yeah, my mother had. Um, we lived in a small apartment, and she had her records laid out. So the Ozzy Osbournes, the Black Sabbaths, even the Parliament Funkadelic records, they're locked into my brain. Like every time I'm in a record store, if I see one of them, it's immediately childhood flashback. And I always feel like at that era, regardless of where you're at, whether it's even now, I think like parents sticking their record covers out so you can like catch is one of the coolest, impactful ways to get introduced to music. So you are obviously an incredible drummer. When did you decide to take this love of Sabbath and turn it into you playing drums? Well, it's weird. It wasn't so much Sabbath. Like, what kind of, you know, like early 80s radio, maybe late 70s. You know, I was born in 73, so that dates how old I am. You know, so in the late 70s, early 80s, when I did finally get my boombox that I wanted for Christmas, I used to listen to the radio and record stuff that I heard and I liked. Off the radio. Off the radio. Yeah. So, yeah, you'd sit there and wait for the DJ to get done talking. You'd get all pissed off when he'd talk over the beginning. You know, but it, back then it was definitely like Van Halen. It was the Who. And it was it was drum stuff. Rhythmically complex stuff is what, what drew me to music. 
So, you know, I, I knew I wasn't a guitar solo guy. I really didn't care or pay too much attention to lyrics. You know, I, I was listening to the beat. And still to this day, you know, why, I, you know, I'm drawn to bands like Candiria and crazy bands like Meshuggah and stuff like that. It's it's the beat. It's the rhythm of it that really draws me to it. So you're you're listening to this music and you and you realize it. Did your family or was it you that sought out and that got you on the path to playing drums? So I, I was in my grandmother's attic. Uh, in Lansdale, she had a, um, like this big old dusty attic, like one of the kinds that just insulation all over the place, nothing in the corner. There was an old drum set stacked up back there and we couldn't, nobody even knew whose it was. So, you know, I remember begging and begging my dad, I was six, if I could take those drums home. And, you know, it, it took a lot of fighting and, you know, I had to go to my grandmother's a few times, but I used to spend summers there because both my parents worked, so they would just drop me off there. And, um, you know, I remember setting them up inside that dusty attic and just beating on them with sticks that I found outside at first. And then eventually I went over and rode my bike to the music store that was DeVoe's Music in Lansdale and actually bought a pair of drumsticks and then just started setting the drums up. And I'm left-handed, but the only way I could see how to play drums was how other people set them up, like from watching it on TV and stuff. So I always set drums up right-handed, even though I played left-handed. So that kind of created me, I think. So you're not even 10 years old, and you're playing drums, and you're pushing yourself. What is there to, what is there to do to pursue music in that way by playing? Is it just playing records and playing with it, or you just you're watching whatever videos? Like, how are you? Are you self teaching, or at some point did your family get you on the path to get lessons? No, I mean, I, I didn't really have lessons until I was in sixth grade, and then it was at school. Yeah, you know? so and that, it, that's not even drum set lessons. You know, that's kind of little band, stuff. It's band, like one, yeah. two drum tips yeah. and stuff. Okay. Yeah, it was like dumb. But from stuff that like point that, where you just spoke to now. You were just self-taught, correct? I got a Walkman, and I used to put headphones on and just play along with the songs that I liked. It was uh, early Van Halen, the Diver Down, stuff like that, and and The Who. I was really big into The Who because I loved the way that he could just play fill after fill after fill and then not even go back to the rhythm of the song, just play like fills over top of everything. You know, he, he was, and I think people have called him this before, but... He reminded me of like Animal from the Muppets. Oh, you know absolutely. what I mean? He just oh, yeah. a spaz, right? And that, that's kind of how I felt. Like that's that's what I wanted to emulate. You know, I wasn't really like Led Zeppelin and, and like the other like heavy rock stuff. It was I, I was kind of stuck on like a couple. couple I mean, you bands can hear like that, that in the even in the Dysphoria LP when they're playing. It's your turn. You're doing rolls, but I think you do you do jump back into the beat after a while. But you're doing them the different off the off the tom snare. You're you're in your rolls, but then you always come back to the you know yeah. Yep, and, and a lot of symbols. I always have oh, a lot yes, of symbols. Yeah. yeah. At a certain point, what was your first interaction with a human being that would get you to play in a band? Was it was it at that stage, or was it like later in high school? It, it was. Pro- I was in middle school actually, but uh, I had friends that were in high school, and they were doing something for the school, like a talent show or something like that. And I remember we played like, um, oh man, it was like a Cure song that "Show Me, Show Me, Show Me," whatever that. Still cool. Terrible. <laughs> still, I, I hated still, that song. Like, but you're still playing. Something. But I did yeah. it. Yeah, and and we did it for like a like a school assembly or something like that. And then, um, and it, there was another thing I did at the school. And then, other than that, you know, I played in marching band. Then when I got to high school and stuff, but you met your wife there. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I you did. Met, I remember your yeah. Talent. That's the, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, which in itself is crazy that you guys have been married now. 
20 years. Dude, literally. And yeah. you met her in the marching band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I did. Yeah. She was 14 and I was 16. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I mean, again, going back to like, we'll kind of come back to this time and time again. It's, it's really been traumas that kind of like pulled out of your life. Yeah. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, metaphorically the beat <laughs> that goes <laughs> yeah, on throughout your whole really life. It really is. Without being too cheesy. So when does Chris start doing things like go to concerts or even, you know, what, like, where does that come into play? So in, in high school, um, well, my parents, my first concert, official concert was Neil Young at the tower. My parents, Damn, they're like the hippies. So they, they took yeah. me down to the tower theater and I remember like taking the L, like it's all yeah. scary back then, you know, cause all my cousins lived in Northeast Philly. So we'd go down to their house and park our car yeah. there and then take the get dropped the off way. at the L. Yeah. And take it all the way to the end, you know, and the L itself was kind of scary back then, you know, you're talking oh, 78, it, 79. Yeah. And then after that, you know, seeing Neil Young and he had these little like Ewok things on stage, these little guys with the hoods and the glowing eyes. So wow. remember how creepy that was? And I remember looking out the window of the L on the way home and thinking I was seeing them like in the neighborhoods driving through. And that was uh, that was the first concert. When did, is at the time in, in the area uh, in Lower Bucks, when, like at high school, where does the, the first like what we would call a show. Is there a show at that time? Like, yeah, how does that, how does that roll out? I did see a show in, in high school. I went and saw Biohazard at the airport music hall in Allentown with Mucky Pup. Hell and, yeah. <laughs> and that, that changed my life. It really did. I mean, that was crazy. In high school, I also, I worked at this place. Um, it was like a, a warehouse that had like nuts and bolts and stuff like that. And there was a bunch of guys there. And I remember like getting turned on to like, like weird weird metal stuff like you know the regular testament and all that stuff but then he had like the mentors and then yeah and then like guar so then we would end up saying hey let's go down to the, the guar's playing at the truck or guar's playing at city garden so you know back then i'm saying 1989 1990 going down there seeing guar shows uh my first real concert though was in 89 my first like mom dropped me off with my friends yeah was in 89 metallica Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. There was one before that, and, and it was, I, I can't remember the exact year, but she let me go with a friend to see Billy Idol and Faith No More at the Spectrum. Damn. <laughs> and it was when Faith No More had that epic, you know, that, that rap song. I didn't know they, they opened did. for Billy Idol, but They it's did, sick. and I never heard of Faith No More before that. So the, my first experience a ever <laughs> hearing Faith No More yeah, was, that. was him coming out on stage singing that, um, that epic song, that, like, rappy song. Before a Billy Idol concert, when I was there to see him do like Gen X songs, yeah, you know, <laughs> so it, that that kind of changed me too. And then after that, I think it was like the year after, or maybe two years after. I remember my mom dropped me and my friend off at the airport, or not the airport, the uh, Allentown Fairgrounds to see Metallica on the Injustice for All tour. Hard, like you know, I was probably. 14 so that was like by, uh, my first like by myself like mom drop you off in the parking lot and pick you up four hours later concert and that changed you know metallica for as cheesy as they got now like when then this, then they were the kings this was yeah this was right at the end of master of puppets the album for injustice for all came out like weeks before that yeah. concert so like you know everybody was on that you know that was definitely that was a child not yet 10 years old and i was excited about injustice for all yeah, yeah. i remember like that was an impactful time and a packable record yeah. so where do you where do you link up with the warrior first or do you do something different no i 
pretty much dysphoria. There, there was a band in high school, too. Um, I was friends with uh, a couple of the guys in a band called Introspect. Did those dudes go on to be in hardcore, or did they go somewhere else? Nah, I mean, they, they were they, they were around the circles. Like, they used to play, like, those Princeton scene. Yeah. And, and like, some of those house shows in West Philly and stuff. Okay. Like, those, what was that, the Cabbage Collective or yeah. whatever that was doing those things back then. So, I, I did go to one or two of their shows, and, you know, I kind of saw what that scene was like sort of through how they were doing it because they were actually in high school now this was the summer right after i graduated from high school and i was at the rope swing on the delaware just hanging out with a bunch of friends and and i remember it was crazy because the shad were running up the delaware these big ugly yeah. fish that look like it's a salmon. big deal in trenton there's an yeah. entire new hope thing called the shad fest yeah so we're at a rope swing jumping off and doing like flips into the thing and these like half dead shad are coming out so then we're like beating each other with them and throwing <laughs> them at canoers and like you know just doing yeah, like doing regular yeah so I- i'm there at the rope swing and my one this one guy that i remember from doylestown i mean like years and years ago back when i lived there just like randomly shows up and he's like hey don't i know you and i'm like yeah and and i said yeah you know i played drums in a couple he's like yeah are you still playing drums and i'm like i played drums in a couple things here and there but nothing nothing serious and he goes i know these guys in doylestown that are looking for a drummer and the funny thing is is i grew up in doylestown from until i was in like fifth grade so all my friends from there were from a long time ago but i still had some right yeah but what's weird is when this guy, his name's Ken Walker, he's living out in California now. When he came up there um, and we vaguely knew each other, it, it, he just introduced me to the, the rest of the guys in the band. And I remember I called them and they said, yeah, can you come down to, to um, Kevin's house? It was in uh, Warrington or Warminster. I never remember the name of those. Yeah, they're, they're all too the, close. Yeah. Uh, he's like, come on down and we'll see what you can do. And uh, of course I went down there and there was a drum set set up and I started hitting it. It was terrible. So he's like, Oh my God, you can actually tune drums. Like, so <laughs> I, I think I got the, the just you gig. yeah, just because I knew how to tune them. And I, and I even wasn't that good at it then. But back then I had this gigantic monster Rogers drum set with two bass drums. And, you know, it looked like one of those old, like Neil Peart drum sets from Rush Yeah, back in the day. So yeah, I remember moving that down there and then we just started practicing like two and three times a week. And then we were hanging out every night. We'd be going to Perkins or Denny's and we'd practice and then we'd hang out all night and then come back to Kevin's house on like Friday nights and watch Headbangers Ball all night. And, you know, so one of the things that I mean, one of the huge aspects of besides our friendship and how much you've done for me is you are a insanely hardworking human who doesn't stop at, I don't know how to do this, or someone isn't helping me. And I've never met someone who could figure something out quicker or say, oh, well, I'll just find this guy who may know this guy who can get to point A to point B to point C. So when the band is at the stage where you're going to try to start, when do you become the guy beyond the drummer, but like I'm the guy getting the band shows, I'm the guy putting the flyers out. Like, How does that take place? I think it just started. I mean, so those guys were like, they wanted to do a band. They didn't know how to tune drums. And then when you showed up, you're like, all right, this is my band. No, they did play some shows, but they were all at the Fiesta Motor Lodge, which is a, a little like hotel. <laughs> Shadiest place ever. Yeah, in, in uh, Willow Grove. Yeah, I know yeah. exactly where it is. Okay? So, so they, they, did, they played a couple shows there. And, and, you know, every year they would have like a picnic where they would play outside with Soul Grind and yeah. stuff like that. So, 
you know, they, they did some stuff, but when I got in there and I had never been to Bethlehem before, I knew nothing about it, but we're get, we're, this is what I would, I'm so yeah. glad you're getting to this. Cause so I, start asking about I heard it. of a place in Bethlehem that did shows. So I just like drove up there one time on a, like a Saturday night by yourself, by myself and went in there and was like, yeah, this place is kind of cool. We could probably play it. I talked to the owner. He gave me a stack of tickets and said, okay, you can come up here in a month. This is basically like me with the Mike Ferenz. Yeah, exact exactly. Same situation. Exactly. So, so once he did that, then I, you know, I was like, okay. So, you know, I call all my friends I know. I made like, you know, we make those old like ransom note flyers where yeah. you're taping letters onto it and stuff like that. And then, you know, and we weren't doing it to be cool or anything. They're just, you didn't have access to photocopiers. Like, yeah. you know, that... It, it, uh, getting a photocopier was a big deal. You had to like go to Staples or Kinko's. I don't even know what store we went to. But I know I remember now. We used to have to go to like a printing place. You know, oh, like with the old lady yeah. at the desk. Yeah, with the old lady and, at the desk. And she looks at what you're like on yeah. a print oh, exactly. in case it's got no yeah. devil oh. stuff. I've been there. Oh yeah, yeah. When, when you have like pentagrams and stuff yeah. on your flyers, she's <laughs> like, no looking way. at you sideways <laughs> and everything. Yeah, but um, no. So we we just did that, and you know, after we did our first show there, we brought a bunch of people, and then there was also quite a few people there because they just had a regular crowd. So then the next time we brought more people, then the next time we brought another friends band up with us and we were like, Hey, these guys soul grind are awesome. You know, we play with them. So, you know, next thing you know, we're, we're doing shows up there all the time. And then I say we're, it's you. And are you bringing like the one for ones and stuff like that? Yeah, that, no, that was, that was all. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I think a lot of PA hardcore kids see flyers from the Scarlet's era, but because you are now a very successful human and in full dad life. There isn't that hardcore guy to be like, well, this is how Scarlet's happened, but the f- the flyers and the shows and those lineups, yeah, they're definitely pretty epic now looking back at it. Oh, yeah. So, so like, one for one, um, they were a little bit later. Like, yeah. I, I kind of got turned on to them probably from Rick to life. Well, that's what I was hoping. Yeah, he I wanted was to, I was gonna, them. <laughs> so, I guess maybe say, hey, this who's the first guy that you brought in that wasn't in your close circle? And then, like, how did you start linking up with, like, the New Jersey, the Rick to Life? Like, how did all that start okay, coming Rick back Rick to Life together? is definitely, that one's easy. That was Richie from Crutch. So and, you met and Richie. Wisdom and Chain. Oh, yeah. So I met Richie kind of by, but we, I met Richie in a really weird spot. He may have played Scarlet's before his band Crutch, but they, they had CCs. They were up yeah, yeah. In, in Scranton playing. So we went to, or <laughs> the sound guy from Scarlet's was actually going to college at um, C, I think it was, or uh, one of, like a community college, yeah. nothing big. And he's like, I want to do a video for you guys. So he brings us to school. And while we were there shooting our video, and it's on this whole like weird sound stage, and, and he did this. You know, I got to show you this sometime. It's like black and white, and he pans a camera over graveyards. And it's that Nefarious Ophidian song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he like pans a camera over graveyards and has shots of us playing live and flashing back and forth. It's like like a real like 80s metal video, you know? But anyway, Richie was going to school there at that same time. And I ran into Richie because he was in the lab while we were shooting our video. And I started talking to him then. And then we started talking about, hey, we should hook up and do shows. And that was, that's how I met Richie. I I would say 94. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. And then uh, they were doing Crutch. And um, as soon as I saw Crutch, I was like blown away. That, That was like... They were like doing like the biohazard. Like we were more they were metal. Definitely we were definitely proto biohazard. Yeah, like, they were biohazard. And there was another band surrounded around that yeah, time yeah, yeah. that was Absolutely, really yeah. good. I mean, 
surrounded and crutch, like, if they would have stuck with it. I mean, it's hard to get a Richie bunch of... Richie doesn't believe that kids want to see crutch. And my friend just put the tape out and sold out. Yeah. And he still doesn't think kids care he's about cra- crutch. He is crazy. So but Richie, I don't think he's get getting going. Carl back, the, the singer. He's not... That, and that, I he's think a, that's... He's a, he's a special human, Carl, so it's hard yeah. to get him to come around. No, no I know, but no, Rich. I have like the most respect for them. I mean, they were way better bands than, than than we were. You know, we were playing metal, so it was definitely a different a different sound and all. But we were accepted. That's why I always said we didn't become hardcore. Hardcore just accepted us. We'll get to that. And <laughs> yeah. I've got, I, I've got a funny story about what the conversation we had before the tour about that. Yeah. But um, so here you are, and and for those understanding, is like dysphoria at the early stages was. If you went to see a band that was so goddamn hard, but death metal, but in the very same breath, like Gravity had Gravity the singer Todd, he had this crazy weird braids in his hair, and he was just like jumping around. He had an ill voice, and everybody in Dysphoria just looked like they could play a thousand. Like I remember the time you guys played J.C. Dobbs. And it was like, you guys, next step up, Fury of Five and 25 to Life. Yeah. You guys get up there, and you guys are shredding. And I was watching band dudes watch you play and be like, what the fuck is this dude doing? Because even though you say, like, oh, you know, they were a better band, like, you guys were playing legit music while the hardcore dudes were just, like, kind of, like, a couple chords and, and, and a breakdown, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's how I saw it as, like, a young kid. So you started linking up with these bands and start bringing them through, or was it kind of like a quid pro quo? You book us, we book you. How did that start no, working out? I, I was booking bands because a lot of these other bands didn't necessarily have places to play. Yeah. So I was booking de- like the Jersey scene at that time, was like outside halls. of the pipeline. Uh, yeah, it was, pipeline, it was, it was pretty dead. Middlesex. Yeah. Remember uh, down in Browns Mills. The Uncle Mike's Pizza Place. Oh, it was yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that dude, now, we, yeah. Yeah, like Danny played that Eagle Cage, hur- Cracker. I remember we played down there during a hurricane. Yeah, it was like the worst weather <laughs> in the history of the whole show. Yeah. No, but uh, so a lot of the Jersey bands didn't have places to play, but there was bands that I liked that I really wanted to bring out. You know what so I mean? So this is the age of cassette tapes and looking up telephone numbers? Is that how you were doing it? Absolutely how I did it. And, and well, a lot of them were, were you know, you run into somebody you know, like, so um, it was actually Richie that was telling me he would show me a lot of bands that he had, like the Godfather. Know, well, he got me together. hooked up to Rick to Life. Yeah, you know because Rick Rick was hanging out up in Northeast PA. He was dating some girl Tara. up there. Yep. So um, he got me hooked up with him, and then once he shows up with his flea circus of, of demos, that opens up a whole new world. I mean, absolutely. For as shitty as he was later in life, in the beginning. Like, he would introduce you to so much new stuff because he was everywhere, you know? I I wish we could have a person stand in. I think later on in an episode, I'd like to conceptualize an idea where we only talk about the positives of what Rick did. Yeah. Because it's foreshadowed by his last 12 years of being an idiot on the internet. But for just so listening, so Rick to Life would come to places like Bethlehem, Pennsylvania with 20-something demo cassettes from bands you may never heard of. This is pre-Spotify, YouTube, anything. So Rick to Life was the reason you found out about new bands if you were only traveling to your local area. And that's what Chris is kind of talking about right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and then I, I would find out, you know, where 
Well, you know, then we would start hooking 25 to life up to play because, well, Rick was going to be there anyway, so we might as well book his band to come down. I and mean, everybody liked this band then. Early 25 to life oh, was, they were awesome, was awesome. Yeah, That got us to go to Scarlet's. Yeah. Because we're like, 25 to life's playing up there? Yeah. And I didn't know where Bethlehem was, so then when I didn't know there was anything to the right of Allentown, and we're like... <laughs> What we have to go right at Allentown? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, I, to be honest with you, you know, I I grew up in, in Doylestown and Lansdale. You know, I had cousins in Northeast Philly. Like we we were around. I was around all these areas. I didn't even know Bethlehem existed either before I went up there. Before I heard about shows, so I we knew nothing about that scene when we came in. But no, going back to what you were saying, though, discovering new bands. So I I would hear about this band in Jersey. You know, like say one for one, and it, that's later. And then I would go, I would look for their demo, and I would pick it up, and I'd be like, "Yeah, that's pretty cool. That that dude sang, sings like he's got two voices at the yeah. same time." I'm like, "That's awesome. We got to bring him down." You know what I mean? And it was just like I, I booked bands that I wanted to hear, and that, that's how you know we got hooked up with. Run through some of the name of bands. Oh, like you know, there there was definitely Twenty Five to Life, Warzone. Yeah. Um. Uh. Hatebreed, yeah, when they were early on, yeah, early, early, early Hatebreed, and then you know some of the other bands like like Crutch becomes Wisdom in Chains. Surrounded was amazing. Soul did you, Grind when was did really you do good. VOD at was it in Lansdale or was that in Scarlet's? VOD. The first time I saw them was Richie Crutch did them at um, the Sherman Theater. Yeah, in, in uh, that's Stroudsburg. In, that's in Stroudsburg down the street from where they have that uh, the cafe where they sometimes do their podcast. Yep. Shout out to Post America Podcast, Richie. Yeah, that's that's where I saw them first. I mean, I heard them. I heard their demo yeah. before that, and I was blown away. I bought by the it. demo on South Street. And yeah, uh, that first demo was amazing. In fact, I wish I still had that because they were re-recorded all those songs. But the way they were recorded, the way Man, he breathed yeah. in between each word that he said was like, <gasps> yeah. "Yeah, that was up. Yeah, you got you psyched on it. You're like, yeah, oh shit, I know, like it." There was so much raw aggression. And you know what? I think that's what sells me more on music than musical talent now is aggression, is genuine. If it's, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I would rather hear a demo recorded in a garage with a boombox by a band that's got Yeah, then someone dropping 808s on a demo cassette. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, believe me, I'm guilty of dropping 808s on... But on, you didn't <laughs> do it in your demo. No. <laughs> so, taking it back. So, you're doing Scarlet's and... and is there scenes in Lansdale somewhere else that you're also doing shows yet? Or is that like the primary spot that you're really working at at the time? No, it, that was the primary spot. And then there'd be little halls that would come up here and there. And then, um, did Land you link up with the, the Lee Heighton guys at that time yet? Or like the Turmoil guys? Or was that later on? No, you know what? We didn't do a lot with Turmoil. Until later on when we were yeah, all they were, together. Okay, they yeah. were kind of. Well, they were going to school down in Philly, but yep, I remember we played together. They were going to school, so they were they were like on a weird hiatus. They would play a couple shows here and there, and usually they would play the big show. Like they were in with like all the straight edge guys, so yeah, they yeah. would be in with like the Earth Crisis and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So again, uh, to kind of like historically explain, there were bands who were linked with straight edge stuff, and their crowds were bigger, but not really attached to the Crutch, the VOD, the Bulldoze, and one for one. There was. Just like we say, like adjacencies, which is what hardcore kids say now. Well, this band's a hardcore adjacent, yeah, but like yeah. there was like two separate, actually multiple tracks of hardcore bands. But I just remember us playing up. You guys played up Lee at Lee Height, and we all went up. So yeah. who were you linking up with to get beyond just playing in Scranton? Or did you go up to Scranton for Richie? Or did yeah, you yeah, you? Richie would bring us up to Scranton. We bring him down here, and then once we got Lansdale going, so there was this like strip mall called or it was like in an Acme or something like that. Did you mall. do? Oh, sorry to cut you off. Did you ever do Top of the Rock with Chris Mushmouth? 
Yeah. Uh, All right, so you did. So you I were did playing Top of the Rock. Yeah. yeah. We actually played with uh, Stuck Mojo there. It was, a, <laughs> it was a crazy show. It was good though, but yeah. Chris Mushmouth at the time was doing shows at Top of the Rock. He was playing in Mushmouth. He had a hall that he did in like Wyoming or something because we drove out for an all-out war show in a rainstorm. Yeah. And obviously, Chris now is running uh, as an independent promoter, one of the top 100 venues in the country. Yeah, big we shout out to Chris. Um, so you're playing in just the tri-state, or not even the tri-state. You're playing like a triangle between like Reading, Allentown, Scranton, and Lansdale. Or were you? Did you ever? When did you break Pennsylvania and start playing outside the state? Well, I mean, there there was some bands early on, and and you know we we were talking about uh, while we were setting up here, a, a good friend of ours, uh, Enrique just passed on and um yeah i think he was probably one of the first ones that got us out of pennsylvania in yeah. new jersey either him or james with uh fury of five but i'm pretty sure it was him i mean fury did shows but they didn't really set many up like, no they they kind of got asked to play them and they yeah. like, make sure you put this band on or yeah else. we weren't we weren't on that list <laughs> yeah. to make sure you put them on that list but i got a funny story and Stickman will probably not remember this. Remember we were at Atlantic City, uh, not Atlantic City, Asbury Park, and Jay, and Stickman and Jay pull up on the bikes? Do you remember <laughs> I, this? I, no, I, I don't remember that. I mean, I do remember seeing them a couple times in so Asbury Park. So we're outside of a show, and Stickman and Jay Fury pull up on these sick mountain bikes, and they're like, what's up? And Chris is like, can you do a wheelie? And Stickman's like, no. And he's like, oh, you're a pussy. And everyone kind of looked at Chris like, oh, shit, he called Stickman a pussy. It's still one of the funniest things to this day. I tell people, well, Chris Beer called Stickman a pussy to his face. You know what, though? I, I've always sort of been genuine, and, and I've always had a problem running my mouth sometimes But it's much, not like, but... fuck you. It's just like no. you, you speak openly. Yeah, I guess. I know um, the first time that I remember you playing beyond the cell block and like beyond because there, there was a weird thing in oh Philadelphia. there was a cell block well there too, was Philadelphia yeah. in Philadelphia at the same time this happened is Philadelphia had hardcore it had the cool guy hardcore shows so Dysphoria was playing like in the death metal circuit which is where I first heard of you guys yeah. you guys were playing at cell block and then you guys played another venue that I couldn't get into because it was 21 plus and then you guys Isn't came that strip club on Tarsdale. Yeah, Avenue you guys played Dreams. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, you guys played an, you didn't play the all age like daytime show. You guys played like nighttime show. Yeah. And I couldn't go see it at Dreams, but I, I bought your demo cassette on South Street. And then um we you guys end up opening that show at JC Dobbs. And I was like, This band is so sick. You know, like it was yeah. so much different. It was like Dysphoria. Then it's next step up. You know, it was like the hardest shit, but it was just cool to see you at that time. So then you're trying to break into the Philadelphia thing, and this is what he's got to start talking about. When do you start putting cassette tapes? Like, I remember that it was a big thing at the time for people to understand. If you were a band, you didn't wait for someone to ask you to buy something. You would go on consignment. You would give tapes, and I'll let Chris go further, but you would give tapes to stores and put your own flyers up to promote your own shows. So if you played a show and you're opening, your still name was at the top because you're promoting all of your shows. Yeah. Can you talk a little about how you were doing that? Yeah, so... Back back then, I mean, really, there there was only two ways people could get your music. There was no internet. Yeah. So you either had to go to a show and buy it there, or you had to go to a record store. So what started out is I started going to all the record stores in the suburbs, which there may have been like a dozen. And then I was like, well, you know, I, I'm going down to Philly anyway. And I had, like I said, I had cousins in Northeast Philly and cousins in South Philly. So sometimes I would come down and be like, I'm going to South Street and just checking checking out the record stores. And then I'm like... Well, maybe I'll go like take a couple demos here because it was actually Rock and Roll Plus was the first place Chris. that took our demo. Yep, and it was I, I don't know if it was him in the beginning because the Mike. old guy there. Oh yeah, the old guy was yeah he yeah, was yeah. Like the store owner. 
So, so they, I mean, he took it on consignment. I don't think anybody else was doing consignment at that shop. Like, they were mostly t-shirts. Yeah, it was t-shirts, and there was a couple yeah. sparse air, like spots for demos. Yeah, so, so, you know, I remember going there, and then I'm like, well, then when we started doing the shows in Lansdale, and I'm like, well, at least the kids in Philly can take the train up to Lansdale. Which so, we did. Yeah. yeah. R5. So, or, R5 yeah. It was R5 line. R5, yeah. yeah. That's right. So, I was like... um, I was like, well, at least I'll start putting flyers up in in all the stores down here in South Street. And then I'm like, well, I'll get more tapes in. And then later I would go into a store with flyers and they'd ask me if they had any tapes and later CDs. So then I'd be like, yeah, you know, no problem. So where did you make your tapes at this time? <sighs> so the first demo, we recorded it at a studio in uh, Ringo's, New Jersey, which is. Uh, I know exactly where it's at. Yeah, it's, it's just uh, it's just east of Trenton. Yeah, north yeah. Of Trenton. Yep. It's like less than a mile from the city. Yeah, so it's um, it, it's like, uh, it, it was crazy. It was in some guy's basement, and they basically told us, like, when we went there, they were like, if you if you bring beer, the guy will give you extra time in the studio. So we thought we were going to be all cool, and we brought, like, $80 worth of beer for the guy. Well, by, like, 1 o'clock that afternoon, he, he drank was it all. He was hammered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we still did, I mean, he was crazy. He was like a metal guy, but he did stuff like those first demos don't sound like anything that anybody ever did because we did like two vocal tracks for no reason whatsoever. You know what I mean? We just did two vocal tracks to make our vocals and this seem, was on tape. This wasn't digital. Yeah, oh, yeah. everything was on tape, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, he did these crazy things that people didn't do and then with my drums when I went in there he's like man that sounds terrible your snare drum it sounds like a trash can I'm like yeah well that's kind of how I like it and he's like we can work with that you know what I mean so my <laughs> snare drum sounded like when you hit it, it was like bang Pop, yeah. and then it, we left it in the studio just like that and but um but yeah I got they, he was bombed by the end of the first day we recorded our, our demos usually only took like two or three days were you going to disc makers yet or you were still doing them like dubs um so the first the first demo we definitely did dubs. I remember I took him to some guy up in um, Allentown. Oh, somewhere. he was pro dumb. It wasn't like the oh, oh yeah. Okay. So he had a room. How did you even like, know? How did you even like? This is where like with you, you always find the guy who knows the guy. Yeah. How did you know there was a guy? So uh, there was a studio uh, this band in Sangel recorded at Hell in yeah. Quakertown, and. Um, I went up to listen to them record, and when I was in there recording, I asked the engineer, I'm like, where do you get these tapes made, right? And he told me, he goes, there's this guy up in Allentown that he does them real time. So he puts one cassette in one tape player, and, and like 150 double tape players are hooked to it. So he could do 300 demos in one shot, and it's one big room, and he had one remote control that started them all, right? It, it was absolutely nuts, but it worked. To look like Willy Wonka, or to look yeah, like yeah, him. no, the, the guy even had like like one of these like monocle eyepieces <laughs> and stuff. Like he was crazy guy, but that's so great. Yeah, that's how we did the first demo. The second one we did at Disc Makers because um, you know it, we sold a lot more of the first demo or of the second demo, and then uh, the um, how did you know about Disc Makers? Uh, you know what? I I don't even remember how I I knew they were in Philly. And uh, they were on Master Street, 4th and Master, yeah. which is now, it was like a warehouse back then. It's probably like, you know, half million dollar houses now. So, uh, <laughs> Sonny Singh had brought up in his episode that his first idea was to have a DVD made of ska bands. <laughs> and he was going to go to Disc Maker. So, locally, uh, Disc Makers is a place where if you're a budding band, you can get demo cassettes, CDs. They sold these crazy 
packages where you can get a demo cassette and a CD. And they, they're still at the time when we had the the first book that you could call get it for free. Yep. They had the LPs, and now they do DVDs. I just think it's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's still running like 20 years later yeah. from what you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, they're in Jersey. They're like a big operation. Yeah, right now. over Last the right, right over there. the uh, right over the uh, Tacone Pomona Bridge yeah, or yeah. Betsy Ross, one of them. Yeah. So you're you're producing. Is Rick helping you at this time, trying to get out? Are you like, were no. you doing the tape trading with bands at that time? Oh yeah, absolutely. We always did tape trading because we used to. Sell. Can you go into that? Because I think it's another like lost thing that people don't. Like, you gotta think about like, we're talking about stuff that no longer happens. Yeah, kind of. no, you're you're right. So so there'd be bands around that time. Like th- there was a band from North Jersey called Redline. You know what I mean? And I remember JJ. He used, yeah, he used to come down and and he'd like he'd be like, hey, I got like ten of my demos. I'll take ten of your demos up here. Sell them if you'll sell mine. And we all we all sold our demos for five bucks, so it didn't. Were you, you traveling know. the hardcore shows yet? Were you at the? Were, oh, yeah. I don't I don't want to jump into. I wanted to say disorders for that, but maybe we should. Were you doing the van driving for your father yet? So in you, yes. All right. So Chris is most known for this white Chevy van that would take Disorders around the country twice, and I'm gonna let Chris kind of take it over, but. This job that Chris had for another person might have been like a way to fuck off and just do the job and come home. And Chris turned this into one of the greatest ways as an asset to promote his band. So take it away. So, so I mean, the the whole story of it's kind of strange. My, my father, when I was in high school, actually, my, my father was 16 when he had me, if I go back a little bit, was 16. Yeah. He worked at the Hotel Tremont in Lansdale, which was right on Main and Broad Street. It was like this old Victorian-like house there. And uh, he was a cook there. And he washed dishes when they first, like he was 16, didn't have no money. He ended up working there for a long time, ended up becoming the head chef there because the owner was this French guy named Marcel. And he taught my dad how to cook like this French cooking style. So my dad stayed there until Marcel died. And when he died, his son took the the place over. And the rumor was, I'm not exactly sure, that he tried to turn it into a gay bar. But this is like late 80s Lansdale. It wasn't quite the gay bar scene in Lansdale then. So it didn't work. It closed down after that. My dad found another job. He found a job driving trucks for this company that supplied cow's pancreas glands to insulin, to people that were diabetic. And um, that company also supplied, like, cows tissues for research for, like, all the colleges and universities and stuff around. So when when that company closed up and moved down to Texas, they took the bulk of their business with them but left a few small customers behind. When those small customers were left behind, my father said, well, I'll just keep doing this. It'll, it'll pay the bills for a few months. Well, a few months turned into a few years. I graduated high school and started just making these deliveries and doing this. So and I would be down in the city. Lansdale throughout the entire East Coast at that time, right? Well, yeah. We used to go all over the place. But most of the time, I would... I, so when I was with the band, I would always have a box of demos. And I had this big, white, windowless van that I made all my deliveries for work in. So if I'd go to Washington, D.C., I would find a record store in Washington, D.C., go in there, make my delivery, then go in there and, you know, talk to the people in the record store and leave a couple tapes. And that's kind of what spread things out. I would see other bands' flyers from D.C. or from, you know, Connecticut or stuff like that and then just start networking that way. So at referencing this, 
there's a lot of younger bands who make a page on the internet on their social medias. They get minimal followers. They get a lot of followers. And then they just like stick one thing out and go, hey, they'll come to me. Here is a guy who had a job that somebody say is cool shit. I mean, you listen to a lot of cool music and you got to go to record stores on your time off during the job and you're pushing your band. And this is the, one of the most resounding and like lasting moments of Chris is he's not in the cool part of the hardcore scene. But because Chris is pushing himself and yeah, everybody knew Chris because he didn't give up. He never gave up like, hey, let's try to get on this show. Hey, let's make sure like, you know, like there's a hustle in this that kind of gets lost because the new idea is, well, if I get cool with three people, they're going to make this work. Or there's this guy, he wants to book all my shows for me so I can sit back and just tweet. And I'm telling you guys who are listening to this, young bands, you got to hustle. Put that thing in front of everybody, not just on the internet, but physically. Don't have a shame in making your own flyer for a show. Not the flyer the promoter may make your own flyer. Because, I mean, how, how many times did you think that you played shows at that time? Where there were seven flyers because there were six bands and everybody made their own flyers. Oh, I, almost every one. Yeah, I mean we we had flyer making days where we'd go up to As band, a band practice. Yeah, and we'd sit there and make flyers for all of our upcoming shows, and then all of our girlfriends would sit there and like do our old physical mailing list, like actually fold up flyers. You got it. You got it. You got to Take this back. So. <laughs> Buckingham, Pennsylvania. I still kind of don't even know what it is, but I was on the fan mail list for Dysphoria's mailing list because at that time, if you wanted to know about some shows from venues like the Trocadero and stuff, you physically got on a mailing list and you would get cards and flyers from bands, even Biohazard. Like yeah, yeah. Bands had physical mail that would get sent to your house. Records had, Record labels had mailing lists that you got on. So yep. How did you even know to do that? Were you just mimicking what other people were doing? No, so we, we would start going to shows, and then we, we'd put out a piece of paper that said, hey, if you want to hear about more shows coming up, give us your address. And I remember seeing yours because you wrote down Joe Hardcore, and you were like <laughs> this little kid back then. Like I think you even still had long hair. I definitely had long <laughs> <Yeah>. hair. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you were Joe Hardcore, and I'm like, man, this little kid's got the balls to be Joe Hardcore now, <laughs> right? <laughs> but... um. But, yeah, the mailing list, it was just a, a way of, of getting stuff out there. But the the thing about it was, you know, later on when that started getting really big, I mean, it was more than $1,000 to put out our mailing list. So we started doing it, like, monthly just because it got so expensive. So this is the kind of stuff that I really can say four or five people in hardcore that I know of handle better than you did. Chris was the drummer of this band, promoter of this band, but he also did this stuff with the band money to just constantly reinvest into the band. And just like hearing that with the thousand dollars, I I know like it's it's not a faux pas to talk about what bands make money wise, but in this, Chris, I really want you to kind of like lay out like how you were taking. Like remember you were buying new gear for the band, you were doing the merch. Like how did you get? Like did you was that just like a faculty you had in your head or like? How did you start doing all that? Like, yeah, I mean, we would save everything. Like, we, we didn't, I mean, okay, later on, we used to start to get a little bit, you know, we're going to we're gonna flex a little bit. We're going to go, we're all going to go out to, like, the Chinese restaurant and spend 250 bucks on dinner on the band, you know. But early on, everything we made, you know, if we made $30 at a show but and sold, you know, 20 demos for 5 bucks a piece, 
you know, that money just went into a box we had, this little metal box. And then eventually, the you same know. same box we had for tour? Uh, there's the been a few of them. All right, all right. There's been a few <laughs> the of them. Box. You know, I, I think we had one stolen once. You know, a few of them broke. But, um, yeah, the uh, so, so we always saved everything that we made. And then we would use that money to promote. So we would use that to make flyers. We would use that to make other demos. We would save it to record. You know, when we recorded, that was always done with band money. And, you know, the first demos weren't crazy. I mean, it, I think studio time was like 50 or 60 bucks an hour back then. The last the last one we did, that split with the hoods and what I did with How It Ends at Tracks East, that was expensive. I mean, I think I mean, that but was... but it was Eric Rachel. It was no, like, it was good. I, it was definitely worth it. It was definitely... But, you know... You, you couldn't just go out and play like three shows and save enough money to, to make a recording after that. But, you know, we're, we're talking at, at that time we recorded four songs and I think it was six grand to record four songs. So that, you know, it gets that got a little expensive. But so you were shuffling every like the money that would come into the band was going back and you guys were buying new gear. You're redoing your merch. That we didn't always buy some, you know. I bought my own gear most of the time, and you know, most of the guys would buy their own gear if yeah. if they had the money. But if we didn't have the money, yes, yeah, sir, we, we definitely bought it. So, at this point, are you guys at the sandwich shop, the infamous sandwich shop yet? Yeah, so I think that happened around 95. Lay that out, because if, if we could go in at like, all the amount of people that stayed there and slept over there became like... <laughs> The sleeping place, but lay it all out for people. So we, we were practicing at um, in Kevin's house in Willow Grove, or my house up up by Lake Nakamixon, or uh, that was it. We kind of went between those two houses. We were down at Kevin's house, and he lived in like a neighborhood, so everybody was kind of close. And his neighbor behind him had a heart attack, and his wife tried to blame it on us practicing <laughs> that did it. Killed the guy. So yeah, so we were kind of like, <laughs> we were kind of like, yeah, we got to find a spot. And um, I, I heard from somebody that there was this glam metal band that was breaking up from this sandwich above this sandwich shop in Lansdale. So I went up there to check it out, and it still had all their stuff on the wall. I mean, they had like wigs hanging up and everything. It was they were they would real, practice with the wigs. No, they were a real glam metal band. I think they were called Storm. Yeah. Oh, I, I got to find the logo. That'd be so cool to look at that. Yeah, you got to uh, ask your mom. She might have saw them back <laughs> at like the Empire Music Hall back in the day, you know. Like, <laughs> but uh, the, the dude had like, you know, the, the Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, like teased up wig and all. But uh, no, when we went there, there was an apartment building across. Well, where we were practicing, they were apartments up until, you know, like a couple years before the bands took them over and they were condemned for people to live in. Because there was a third floor there that was blocked off. You couldn't get up there. But it was full of pigeons. So there, there was like hundreds and thousands of birds up there. So the birds used to come down into our room every once in a while. But for some reason, the place was condemned. I mean, it was pretty disgusting anyways. Big holes in the wall. You know, always had roaches and stuff. But it was good enough to practice in. But across the street from us, there was an apartment building. You know where that office building was yeah. there now? It was all night. That used to be a four-story apartment building, right? You know, one of those, like, old, like, brick, like, real generic-looking things. Well, when we moved in there, all of our windows on that side were broken. They had BB holes in them because the people that were in there before were shooting the windows out, trying to get that band, the glam metal band, to turn down. Because they, <laughs> they had, like, four full stacks in that little tiny room, you know? Or you guys only had two full stacks. Yeah, we only had two full stacks. But we knocked the wall out. 
Okay. You remember yeah. the, that weird carpet spot on the floor? And that wall, we were going to knock it out by me putting a, a motorcycle helmet on and Neil throwing me through it. But <laughs> Something out of the jackass. Yeah. No, but uh, so, yeah, we moved up there. And once we moved up there, we were like, oh, this is great. So then we had a spot to crash. We had a spot to bring our girlfriends and stuff like that. But even beyond that, we had a spot that we could hook other bands up that needed a spot to stay. Me and Mikey Hoods, I think we slept there four days in a row one time. Yeah, well, Hoods came out. A few bands came out from Sworn California. Vengeance or, was, or the Sea Guys? Yeah, well, they stayed at my house, All too. Right. I know we had. I know me and Mikey were throwing crab apples no, at yeah. members of the band. Oh, a lot of bands stayed out there. It was great for the West Coast bands, too, because where Lansdale's located, like, you could get to New York in two hours. You know, you get to Philly in, in an hour. You get to D.C. in three hours. Do you think with your driving route and... and do you think that was a big, easy way to kind of, like, get you across the tri-state was through that? Because yeah. of how close everything was? Well, definitely. I mean, so so the other thing was, I, with my driving route, with my work, you know, if I was up in North Jersey and saw there was a show at the Pipeline later on that night, I would just stay up in North Jersey, hang out, get something to eat, go see a show up there. You know, if I'd see 25 to Life was playing or something. Um, the same thing with CBGBs. I would see a cool show that was going on there. I would just stay in the city up there and then hang out and go to the show. And then while I was there, I'd go to that generation records yep. and do, do my normal, you know, go up to bleaker bobs and, you know, just go to a few record stores. Like I would normally do down in Philly, leave you, some tapes. Do you think that the response was starting to, uh, could you see a response from the hard work that you were putting in? Were you getting phone calls and, uh, interactions from bands and promoters from all the stuff that you were doing with these record stores out of town? Yeah, no, I had a lot of interaction with other bands just because of they were like, hey, I saw your stuff in Boston at a record store and I picked it up, you know, and I'm like, wow, I was never in Boston in a record store. So somehow my stuff got to a store in Boston and somebody picked it up. And then, you know, even then the weird stuff started happening where we started getting these weird Japanese distro guys that wanted us to send like 200 tapes to Japan. So then we started getting letters, like handwritten letters with cash in them for people wanting us to send stuff like P-P-D, T-shirts. PPD, a.k.a. postage paid. Remember that? Yep, yep, yep. So, so you yeah. didn't have the Venmo. We didn't have Cash App. We didn't have PayPal. If you wanted to buy a record, cassette tape, T-shirt, you sent cash hidden, yep. wrapped up in a million yep. different weird-ass yeah. ways, <laughs> yep. and then you maybe got your record or could tape whenever it got to your house. Yep. And there was no online complaining. Yep. So when we did CDs later out to Japan, we used to pull the CDs out of the cases and se- and put send the discs the sleeve, in there. Yeah. yeah, and send them in the sleeve because it was cheaper to ship them. So you could ship them 100 CDs and all they'd have to do is buy new, you know, shells, the, the plastic part. But no, it, it was crazy. But all the work, you know, putting it in, going to all those shows and stuff, I think it was more the you meeting other bands. So, you know, it, it, I, I met the... Um, Incision at that time was the band up in uh, up in Boston. Hell yeah, we that traveled we met. up there. Remember? Yep. Who becomes later becomes Death Before Dishonor, but you know it, it was just like I, I think we went to a show in Rhode Island or Connecticut or something like that, and saw these guys play. Hooked up with them. They hooked us up with a show in Brockton. We brought them down to Lansdale, and then you know, yeah, then, we, I mean, and it wasn't like oh yeah, we did it. Like when you went to the show because I was a roadie. I was a roadie for Disworry at that time. We would drive up, me, my boy Ray Ray, and the Swear would load in. We'd load in. We would mosh with a band, then we would watch the other bands. And you wouldn't just go home 
You'd hang out, and we stayed at Brian's house that yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. Or we'd go out to, to some diner or something and hang out. Yeah, but out. there wasn't just like this, thank you for your business, now we're going to go apart. Like, you hung out with the people that hooked up, and you hooked, and then you returned the favor. Because remember when you did, you brought Incision down to Lansdale. Yeah. So, uh, at this point, you're starting to, we're starting to talk about Lansdale shows. When was your first that you were able to start doing Lansdale shows and becoming, like, the local band? So, so there was a club in Lansdale. I started talking about this. Oh, yeah, that's it was right. called we Jumpers. The, yeah. yeah, in the, in the Acme Shopping Center there, and um, they were. It was like half arcade, half shows, and you know they were doing local bands in there. So uh, the band Soul Grind was definitely the first one to play there out of the Lansdale bands. So we all went down and we saw Soul Grind play, and we're like, "This is great." So I talked to the owner and like, you know, we're going to be doing a show here, and he's like, "Well, you know, I'll put you on a show." I said, "No, that just." Trust me, let us do this. So we did it, and it was good, and, you know, there, there was a whole bunch of shows there then. And then it started out where we would write a new song and be like, hey, let's go down to Jumpers tonight and try it out. We didn't even know what bands were playing. We would just show up with all our stuff and be like, hey, we're playing tonight. Is this 97 or? Maybe, yeah, sometime around there. But also at that time, there was a few halls in Lansdale that we started doing shows in. Because I realized, I'm like, well, I could give this guy like three quarters of all the money that comes through the door, or we could do a show at a hall where we're just splitting the money between the bands. And at that time, we were we were hooking up with that band Cipher in Long Island. Remember we, we um, all right, so just to, I don't know if you remember this. So Disweria goes up to Club 121 in Brockton, and on the way home, we play, do- I say we being Disweria because it's easier. Yeah. Obviously, I'm just a idiot roadie who moshes. But uh, we, on the way home, we stop in Long Island and we play Dr. Shades, the first Dr. Shades. Yep. And Cypher is this awesome man from Long Island. And this is another returning thing is that bands look out for each other. Hey, you want to hook us up? We'll hook you up. And that was a huge part of how bands got around without having to kiss the royal ring or kiss the ass to get on things. No, that we brought Burnside with us on that. Yeah. That weekend. And I remember that because... And, and the whole reason was, is I guess at that point I, I was flexing maybe a little bit because I did, you know, be like, hey, if you guys are going to invite us up to Brockton, can we bring these guys from Burnside up? You know what I mean? But it was it was always really cool because Incision, were, they were the guys doing that show up in Brockton. You know, Cypher was doing that show in Long Island. So, you know, for them to, to hook that up was great. And then with Burnside would hook either one of them up. But Burnside was... They didn't do a lot of shows themselves. That they was got, the furthest they traveled away. Yeah, they got on a lot of shows, but they didn't. You know what? I think it was funny. I think uh, I, I just was talking to Lance not too long ago. I think his his girlfriend at that time, Jocelyn, was pregnant with their first yeah, kid she, during that weekend. Like, I, and, I, and I just remember I was looking. I'm like, holy, holy shit! Your kid's going to college now. Like, yes. I remember being on that tour and him talking about his girlfriend was pregnant. Like <laughs> I run into Lance occasionally because we work both downtown at Union Jobs. Yeah. And we'll see each other in parking garages and he's loading his tools, I'm loading mine. So one of the things that just again going back to this, before the era of managers and booking agents and even like the one promoter who doesn't the bands were very involved at this stage with being the people who had a hand in getting bands on shows. And it was out of like a trade scenario and it got you guys i mean shit we traveled that a, a bunch of places detroit chicago and i mean you were doing shows regularly in new jersey um 
what were the, some of the other bands that you were trading shows with at the time? Well, Cold as Life, it, well, you mentioned Detroit, you know, yeah. it was Cold as Life, it was that um, Earth Mover, those guys. Yeah, Lenny. Maniac. Yeah, man, he, he was a maniac and his band was amazing too. And Cold as Life too, I mean. Dude, the best. Uh, yeah, and then Jeff later, is, Jeff Dogs is out of, of jail. Oh, good. He's out of jail and he is finding his place in the world. Good, good. They, you think they're going to do anything again? I don't know what I don't know what will stand. Jeff has some things going on in his family life, and uh, he's just trying to get back into the swing of things. But it's just good to see our friend out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he. I remember the first time. I, I, I'm gonna get off track. The no, first yeah, time no. we went to Detroit, I'm pretty sure you and Mike were with us playing some union hall, like an auto, a UAW. Yeah, union yeah, it was hall. a UAW. Yeah, and we we go rolling into this part of Detroit. It was a terrible neighborhood. I mean, like everything about it was like. What you would see on the news, like, you know, it we was knew literally Philly. like RoboCop. Yeah, it was like RoboCop. <laughs> it's like like RoboCop. We're, we're, we we pull in. There's a liquor store right next door with the bulletproof glass yeah. turntable thing. You know, we go in there and buy a bag of chips and a soda or something. We walk into the club and uh, Jeff and Dougie. Remember that guy, Dougie. Dougie? So this is early on. He's sitting there with a, a tattoo of a bulldog on his throat. This yeah. is way back before people had throat and face tattoos. You yeah. know, you're Cold talking. Cold Life in Detroit were the purveyors of face and neck tattoos when you had to be hard to have them. Yeah, you definitely had to be hard. And I, I just remember going in there and I'm like, man, 10 bucks for a show. That That's crazy. It's expensive. Well, I didn't realize it was like 10 bucks for all you can drink. And they were handing out free beer at that show. So yeah, we were, I read that because it got so crazy by the time. I, it I think that show was like Death Threat, All Out War, Us, and Coldest Life. Like it was an amazing lineup too. Like, I, maybe not All Out War, but Death Threat was there. Death Threat was there, and uh, I remember that show. That that's like one of the first shows we sold like a thousand dollars worth of just merch. That night, I remember people were out there moshing and breaking beer bottles over each other and stuff like that. Like I don't I even know, think we you were and try- Mike were moshing. We were going to start moshing, <laughs> and the floor was so wet from beer yeah. that we tried. And after the third time, we ate shit. Yeah. And then we started realizing they were throwing bottles. I'm like, all right, this is like a rodeo. I'm out. <laughs> These, those dudes were big too. Like yeah, they were. Was, they were big and hard. Like it was. They yeah, were like, like we were pissed 17, off 18. auto workers. Yeah, yeah they were basically like grown ass, full bearded men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but that was like those were the, the the memories, you know what I mean? And then like, and then after that, going to Chicago with the Cat Burglar guys who ended up becoming you know the killer. Yeah, and I mean all them dudes like VJ would move out to California and start bleeding through. Shane obviously we would meet him later, and he became so pivotal with Arlington Heights. And yeah, it's incredible to think about that time and how so many of these things go back to you because you were like the hub. Like if I didn't know somebody, I asked you, like, "Oh, who you?" Oh, yeah, just talk to this guy. Like, yeah, yeah. you knew so many people because you just reached out, you know. And like, I mean, when I started doing my shows, you guys played my second show I ever did. Remember, like at the at the Unity Street Hall show. Oh, that that was amazing. I, I wish you had. I know you did have a couple shows because I went to a couple that you did. You did that we didn't play even too. Yeah, I did the Forens, and then I did the first three C's Unity Street Hall show. Then the second one, you guys played, and Neck played. Yeah, and then uh, For Life played. R.I.P. Shane. Yep, yep. Shane. And um, Burry, I always tell Bob Burial Ground came down. Oh and played. yeah. And at this time, I was writing hand letters to bands. I was handwriting letters to everybody, yeah. and I was on mailing list apparently, as Joe Hardcore. And when Burial Ground. Came down. They were their big thing is they were on Revelation Records. They kept saying, "Yep." 
And then when they got to the show, they said they wanted two hundred dollars. But in the letter they gave me said sixty, and I kept the letter. I'm like, you guys said sixty plus gas, so we're not paying you two hundred dollars. And yeah. I remember being like seventeen years old, being like, here's the letter, like here's the proof. Yeah, I mean, you probably made. I mean, I'm sure that show was probably five bucks to get in. Yeah, it was almost like five all or seven bucks. Yeah. Most, yeah. But no, I, I I remember. I mean, there was definitely some times, you know, like when, when you'd book bulldoze and stuff like that, you know, and and. You know, Kev would would definitely come off as you know, holy shit! I better make sure we pay this dude. You know but he what was I mean? Great. But he was an oh, he was an awesome guy. You know, and and, and we had um, I, I don't, there there was just so many it, there was so many good, really great people that you meet just because, and it's not because they're in a band and they're the hardest dude ever. It's because you see what they're going through to get to where they are. You know, and that that was the whole that was the whole thing for me. And what well, you said, I was the hardest working and stuff. I, I'm not, I guess I'm just obsessive and kind of manic about some things that I, you're right. I don't give up and it's still the same way I do it now. That's the same thing you have in you. That's why we connected in a lot of ways was that we both had like a drive and it wasn't like here was the end goal. Cause there wasn't, what's the end goal? Like we're, we're dealing on such small levels. No, I was never was trying to be a rock star. Well, was I a rock star? <laughs> like what do you, the goal was I want to play this show. I want to book this band. I want to do this one thing. And when that was over, there was the next thing. So, obviously, Dysphoria was on Call for Unity, and that was a very cool thing. Yeah. What do you think, if you could say one thing about the band, what do you think stopped you guys from ever getting, like, attention from labels? Was it just you guys never wanted it, or was this, like, wasn't really there? It's not that we didn't want it. I mean, I did. I definitely did reach out to some labels, you know, and sent them a demo and stuff. I think we even had, like, a press kit. Like, it, it, it was terrible. You know, it was, like, basically, you know, if you went to... Back then, there was no internet. So you went to the library and, like, looked up how to make a resume... You know, you went to this, there was a book called uh, Book Your Fucking Life or something like that. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah. So, this is a magazine. And I didn't use that to book any shows, by the way. <laughs> I actually fucked up and started using it in early punishment stages when it went to the internet. Yeah. And some of the funniest, worst shows we ever had <laughs> sure. were because of it. So, Book Your Own Fucking Life was independently pressed, I think by Maximum Rock and Roll, and it was available at, like, Tower Books and record stores. And if you were a local promoter, Jamie Josta, a lot of people were involved in individually distributing music, as we, Chris and I were speaking on. And at that time, if you were a promoter, you could list your name in this book. This is still because the Internet's not really the main access for interactions. So you would write your name down, this is what I book, and random people would contact you and ask you for a show. And you either bucked up and gave them a terrible show, or you were reliable and you gave them a good show. But it was a, again, because you guys don't understand, the yellow pages of booking DIY at that time. I was always too afraid, and not not necessarily afraid, but I never even tried it because I, I do know there was like the weird bar show that we would end up getting on that it would just not go over well, you know? And you're playing at a place, and there's people sitting at the bar trying to have a conversation with like, like their girlfriend or something like that, and they're basically like, turn it down, you know? Those scenes never... We wanted to play metal shows. We wanted to play hardcore shows. So I, I just gave up on ever using that to book. But I did use it to write our press kit. So we did have press, and it was back from, like, zines. Yeah. That was everything. So zines would review your stuff. And we, we did get a lot of really good reviews back then. But I, I don't think that we were something for... 
for many labels, you know, like, like we didn't have that hardcore sound like biohazard and Madball for roadrunner records. We definitely didn't have that revelation sound. You know, we weren't really, we weren't somebody that would work out for like victory. So we, we sort of just kind of floated around doing our own thing, but we nowadays bands are, are not looking to labels because record labels can't do anything for you. You're not selling records now. So, and anyone can get their stuff on Spotify or Pandora. You know, you can just register your stuff for that. But what what we did is we pressed our own CD. And we sold, well, distributed, I would say. We probably gave away 3,000 of them. But we sold 10,000. I pressed 10,000 of those CDs. And I don't have one left now of that hope without reason. So, so contrary to that, think of all of our friends who had record deals. Yeah. They didn't do 10,000 records. And if they got 10,000 records, they didn't see $1,000 in any kind of royalties because the label charged them five or $10,000 for promotion and all this other stuff. So I think short term, yeah, you were never part of the label thing, but you guys saw the dividend return into your band by being DIY because the money that was sold from the CDs came back into the band, as we talked about earlier, but also... In distributing and passing out, you were you were still promoting your band. Yeah, well, we did get hooked up with some some distributors then later, and and I remember going down Link, to Very Link, Distro, like Link, on Link American Street. Link yeah. into that because like I think it's again something that is unseen, and a lot of what I a lot of what I see in hardcore today is the internet stripping away the nuts and bolts. How do I do what I want to do if no one is able to support me and help me? So run through like what getting a distributor was that kind of deal like if for what you know of at that time <laughs> so you know i had my earliest distribution was driving around physically driving to record stores and putting your tapes or cd's in that store then i had you know you would find out that these stores bought their stuff from a distro and i would talk to the store owner and he would say hey this distro is selling me a lot of this metal and hardcore, you should talk to them. R.I.P. John Berry, one of the yep. honest, truest, amazing guys who just would take on any kind of hardcore, the very catalog, which one day I hope we do a whole entire episode on this. He would just be the person who would take these indie records, and even bigger records, but it was one place you could buy everything out if you had this catalog. Yeah. I and- used to drop off probably... 50 CDs and 30 tapes to him at a time. I used to drive down to American Street, that it old is warehouse. It's completely renovated. They have all new sidewalks, and it's like going to be completely gentrified, Chris. Oh, no, I, I know. I, I've driven it's by so that, crazy that to neighborhood. Think about it. I know, but yeah, it was, then like, it was a like a war zone. Yeah, was, war zone. <laughs> I know. But well, that's where Disc Makers was yeah. down there, too. So, yeah. yeah, you would drive through these terrible neighborhoods. And I, I used to always love it when, you know, family members later, you're at a Christmas or something, and they're like, Oh, you playing a band, you know, you were just out on tour, you know, you said you were just in Albany yesterday or something. And they're like, yeah, I know Albany. Like, where did you guys play? I'm like, we never played the nice neighborhoods. Like, No, we played Troy. We played, yeah. <laughs> played all the craziest places. Well, not not even that. But, but even if you were like, yeah, we played in Detroit. We didn't play in like the nice market area of Detroit next to the GM building. And, yeah. you know, where the thing we played in like the bombed out neighborhood that you would probably get murdered on if you actually, I do remember walking around with Mike Brown in that neighborhood. Uh, he was spray painting stuff too. Yeah. Like we really, that probably was not a good time to be doing that back then. <laughs> so 
Were you organizing like the band schedule? Like, hey, we're gonna play here. Was there organization in any regard to like these are the new places we're trying to hit, or was it like we talked about? You're just going after the next show, the next show, the next show. There wasn't. I mean, there was organization only when, like, say, I knew we were going to Boston, and I would say maybe we want a show in between there, and we'll stop and stay. You know, we'll get get a show in upstate New York or Connecticut or something. Or when we would go, you know, if um, Shane was doing that Arlington Heights, he did that um, that festival every year out there for Chicago. And, you know, we would always try and hit a show up in Pittsburgh or Detroit on the way out just, you know, it's to make it so you weren't driving 12 straight hours. Yeah, I think that first one, it wasn't Mike. I think it was like me and Rayway. And he did Chicago and then Detroit the way home. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, I know Mike Drelling came out. Mike Drelling. Dr- yeah. The yeah, best. Yeah. So, um, but no, I, so, but definitely when you did tours, there had to be organization, but for the most part, we played every weekend for, for good, I would say from 96 to 2000, we were playing probably three shows a week. Now, this is where the sandwich shop also comes in. As a roadie, you had X amount of time to go get done work, get on the R5, get to where Chris can pick you up, and the entire band would come either from work or whatever. Todd, who was in a family business working for his father, who was a plumber, would get into the truck on Friday in his dirty work clothes, and we were traveling to the first show. Oh, yeah, And then we were getting dropped off 4 a.m., 3 a.m., 10 p.m. on a Sunday night at the end of the weekend to start working. Like, this isn't, oh, we did, you know, we're staying in hotels. This is, like, literally hustle. We're on the weekend hustle. We're not coming home. Pack light, let's go. We didn't, we didn't, a lot of times we slept in a van yeah, a lot or at of times, somebody's yep. house. And, you know, I kind of preferred it. Like, I, I did, I don't know what it is. Or if we did get a hotel, we would get one hotel room for yeah, like everybody. nine of us in one hotel room. But, but no, I, I definitely, I, I got home. There was a lot of times where we would get home and I would basically just get something for breakfast, change my clothes, and go to work. Like, I, I didn't sleep at all. And I, I know, most of the guys in the band were the same way. And especially, we would bring a band out from California. So we would go out to California. Or, I want to get to that. I want to get to the whole tour booking yeah. thing in a second. But 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 anyway, so, so say we had a touring band out with us. We would try and get as many shows as we could for that band. And a lot of times, like that band Seed, nobody knew who they were out here. So the only way that they were going to get... Big Don. Yes. Oh, my God. The only way we were going to get on those shows, or they, we were going to get them on those shows, was if we played them too and we brought them with us. You so, did this show for Sworn Vengeance, Hoods, a New Jersey Bloodline, at the Stalag. Oh no, no, Killing Kill Time, on a weekday night. Yeah, and it was still one of my favorite shows. Really, and that was the first time I remember Jersey Bob Gut Punch Bob Records. I do, I do, yeah. He had been really influential to me in a lot of ways. But he had had a long relationship with Mikey Hoods, and that was the first time they met in person was that show. Wow. And there's a lot of dysphoria things that like always tie back into you being like the link between this band linking up with this band. Sworn Vengeance playing a show in Lansdale, but also jumping on another show. And it seems like throughout the, the time that dysphoria was playing, you were always such a key factor in taking care of the people in other bands, the way you would also then return get treated. And I think that's something that isn't seen enough today. No, I, 
like Mikey Hoods is a great example. You know, we, we brought him out. Um, he stayed at my house one time. And then the other time he wanted to stay at our practice place, I guess, just because they were going to be coming at that time. They weren't touring with us out here. They were touring on their own. So he was wanted to come and go. He wasn't necessarily going to be there every night. Is that when he stuff. slept at my mom's house for like a week? It might no? it, it might be one of those. But and he left his band up at our practice. Yeah, place. yeah, yeah. Oh, and he yeah. stayed at my mom's yeah. with a girl, and the whole band had to stay at the practice oh, studio. Yeah, yeah I, I remember. <laughs> but anyway, so but we would we would always want to treat him. And then I remember when we went out to Sacramento, he brought us into his house. You oh, know, yeah, and I literally remember, like, yeah. Uh, so getting up to this moment, this warrior has. A self-release CD that's incredible. You played the East Coast. Your name is ubiquitous because you work so hard. Obviously, you're on this podcast not only because of our friendship. All the stuff we just talked about is my hardcore high school, my my hardcore junior college, everything that would make this hardcore possible was because you and I never get to say that enough to you. Well, you and you have said it and so, I hate compliments. But. So I'm not I'm 18 years old. I'm not doing well mentally. I'm a father. I'm not really happy with life. I got a weird job. I'm stressed the fuck out. I don't know what to do with my life. And you call me and you're like, yo, do you want to go on a US tour? And I remember getting on the phone and crying because like I it's like I was booking bands. At the time, I had booked Buried Alive, and I would booked All Out War, and I would booked these cool shows. And I didn't... It was like a kid asking, like, what's sex like? I'd be like, yo, what's tour like? <laughs> because all my friends and these bands that I'm booking are touring. And we had gone on weekends and stuff in, like, three days or yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. 1999, July. Mike Brown from Frankfurt. I think he was 18. I'm 19. I was turning 19. You take two kids from Frankfurt who are pretty fucking poor at this time, city as anything, and you just say, you know what, let's take these two dudes on a U.S. tour. And there are so many relationships that were forged in that asking us to be on this tour, and there would be no This Is Hardcore, and I don't know how much of my hardcore life would have existed in this second phase without being exposed to the hardcore scene in America, not only just as a human being being exposed to being taken out of Philadelphia. Because at that time, the only places that I went were hardcore-related because of shows, which just where it took me the furthest. I was down the shore a couple times, and I'd been up the mountains once with a family, and the rest was for hardcore shows. So you expanded my entire life by taking me on the U.S. tour, and... It's changed me as a human, and I'm forever grateful for that. But I need to know, because we were friends, but you know, not like, hey, here's my plot. How the fuck did you plot a U.S. tour in 1999? It was it was a lot of phone calls. It was, hey, you know, this band is in Pittsburgh. Let me call them up. And then when I called them, I was like, hey, you want to do like Pittsburgh and Ohio? I'm not even actually sure. Like, we'll do a couple shows here. And then, hey, when you guys want some time, when you come out to the East Coast, we'll hook you up. But let me go back before to answer your question. You, you want to know the reason why we called you and told you to bring Mike was, for one, Mike was living with you at the time. So it, it only seemed right to bring you both. 
But you were as much a part of what you guys were doing, the way you guys were dancing, the hype that you had for our band. Even if it wasn't for our band, just the hype you had, the energy you had, the excitement you brought when you went into a place and you two started doing spin kicks out in the Midwest when nobody ever saw anybody mosh like that in their life. You guys were as much of a draw on that tour as we were. You know, you guys were moshing naked in in like the Midwest, in like Nebraska. You know what I mean? Like these things didn't make sense. Everything that we had, like maybe our music was crazy and different for that era, but you guys definitely brought something that we couldn't we couldn't bring and we needed to bring people with us. And you guys were definitely it wasn't even a discussion. Like if you wouldn't have went, we may have been like, oh, I don't know, you know. We got these shows, but you know who's gonna who's gonna watch us play? And there was a couple shows that were so shitty that it was just you and Mike. But <laughs> I, I I couldn't think of anything else. And and the other thing is what what you said earlier. Why you know I, when I said maybe it's my obsessive my my manicness that makes you do things. And you said we sort of bond on that. I I think that's true. Like I'm always. I, I'm always stuck on what you're doing, and I can talk to you forever. And yeah. In fact, we on that tour, there was a lot of times when everyone's asleep in the and whole I'm band. And I'm a shotgun. And you me and, and me in the front, like, dissecting a Halloween album. <laughs> Dr. Steam makes funny creatures, man. Dude, we, we had that thing down. But anyway, how I did that was phone calls, and it was... You know, I know a band from this area, or I know a band from nearby area, and when I would talk to them, they would point me to one that was up in the thing. We were supposed to, remember that show in Evanston, Indiana? Yeah. Or Evanston, Wyoming. Wyoming. Yes. Uh, Evanston, Wyoming. We were supposed to play in Salt Lake City with a band, Clear. Yeah, Sean from Clear. And um, that show got canceled because something ha- somebody got killed or something. Something happened at a club. In Salt Lake City, like a, a few months or a few weeks before that. And uh, it was canceled. The show was canceled. So we didn't have anything. Sean was like, hey, these kids are doing shows in Evanston, Wyoming. I can get you on this show. And I'm like, I didn't know one band. No, that was, I'd like to get into the tour later. Yeah. And just go through some of that stuff because it's just so epic. Yeah. So was the tour because Coming Correct was in California or that was already happening? Like, and this was people who don't know. Rich to Life would be doing Come and Correct, and at any given time, whoever could play the band was Come and Correct with Rich to Life. So were those California dates set already, or are they not set already? No. So Rick was talking about doing California, and he asked Judd if Judd would play guitar. Judd was for a guitar him. player for Dysphoria at this time. Yeah. So so he had asked Judd if he wanted to play guitar for Come and Correct in California, and Judd was like, "I don't know. You know, we'll see." I got a lot of stuff going on with Dysphoria, and he was like... Judd was just 17 or 18? Because he's younger uh, than He me. wasn't 18. I, yeah, because I, I, yeah. I was 18 turning 19, and I turned 19 like the date, like t- like five days for the tour. Yeah. And then he... So he was like 17 or 18 yeah. on that tour. His mom gave me like the sit-down talking to before <laughs> I took her baby yeah. out <laughs> across the country. <laughs> so you... He so, was still in high school. So the Come and Correct dates were in California, and it was Come and Correct... Dysphoria and our friends all bets off. Which, how fucked up is it? We're going to say this again. Rest in peace, Sammy the Mick. Yeah. Oh my God. His Dude, how story many times was are we? Nuts. How many times are we saying RIP in this already? Right now, no. I, I, I'm, and and these are just the guys that were in bands or, or you know, 
linked to the stories we tell. The the list is is it's, growing. It's huge. Yeah. So we had Calif- we you had the California dates, and so basically what you're saying to me is that this is just what Chris does. Chris just goes, oh, this guy knows this guy. Oh, maybe we'll play here. Yeah. And you just made it work. Yeah. So we knew Mikey. We knew Hoods. We knew Powerhouse. That was about it in Northern California. And then they hooked us up with somebody down in Southern California with that um, PCH club. Oh, oh, no, yeah, actually, yeah, we'll, I think yeah, Rick, we'll, no, we'll, we'll get Rick that had whole that thing. Hook I, yeah. I, I kind of wanted, because there's so many wild things that were Chris-related that just show you shit. Yeah. So the tour set, we, get in, we go to, was there Costco's at that time or not? Yeah, uh... Yeah, they were Costco's. Yeah, they weren't BJ's. Where, so, yeah, we so always get used to get them both places. So, layout, because if you're in, you know, it's like one of these, if you know, you know. Well, on this U.S. tour, there was no Denny's. There wasn't hotels. It was Chef Boyardee breakfast and eating cold, dinty more beef stew every yeah. single fucking day. So, yeah. lay it out for me, Chris. No, so... <laughs> So we had determined that, you know, mo- nobody had any money. Joe and Mike definitely didn't have any money. Like, they basically both left to go out for over a month with a backpack yes. each. Yes, You know, and we didn't even have many clothes. In fact, you know, you ran out of clothes. You either did laundry at a truck stop or you bought another band's T-shirt or traded a shirt at the next show. So, you know, th- there wasn't a lot of that going. I still had long hair, I think, when we started that tour. Yes. And I shaved my head in Chicago. The I first shaved. Night. My, we both shaved that's our right. head the same night because I started getting dreadlocks yeah. in my hair already, and I'm like, "All right, that's it." Remember, we were partying with the St. Louis skinhead dudes and all the dudes from Chicago, and <laughs> at their apartment, I'm like, "That's it. I got to go full yeah, shave." I, I can't remember. Do, I was. We're at not that doing. A, we're not doing a hair. We're not doing hair this whole tour. <laughs> yep. We shaved down again. Yeah. No, I, I look at those pictures of me. I'm like all little and skinny, and and I'm wearing like I'm wearing this shirt with my head shaved completely bald. Yeah, it was, but anyway, the um. I don't even remember what I was talking about. We're talking about the big box of the food. Oh, yeah. So so we used to go to Costco. So nobody had any money. So we determined early on that the band was going to be paying for food. So we're like, you know what? We're going to eat nothing. But like we would get these mega cases of Chef Boyardee, whatever, beefaroni, yeah. ravioli, and we just eat it cold. You yep. just crack a can open and throw a fork in it and eat it. And then throw it. We, we had that little pit on the yeah, side the door of the, the van. You just throw all your trash there. And then when we get to a rest area, you just open the door. Just knock it the fuck down. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we were eating cold food. Um, I remember Gravity had had those, like, those cliff bars. and well, Those things were all really metrics. expensive. Yeah. He was all trying those to be Those things were all expensive. We're eating, like, a 50-cent can of, of food or, or ramen noodles. We got that rice cooker somewhere. Yeah. Somebody hooked us Todd, up with a rice cooker. Todd was cooker. like into that because yeah. he's a, a keto guy. Yeah, and then somehow we, we we learned that you could make ramen noodles in the hot water in there, and that not only that, then he started making rice. Like we got one yeah. of them like fifty pound bags of rice. We started making rice and then pouring a cold can of chili on top of it. That was actually I still eat that to this day. I I definitely when we're at Penzik War, I and Todd, I definitely do Chef Boyardee breakfast a lot of the times. So we travel out from Philadelphia, and the first show is not in Ohio or Pittsburgh. It's in Chicago, which oh, okay. See, became the punishment yeah. background. And and I know East Coast people like do that so far, but like a lot of times on East Coast tours, why are you going to play Maryland, New Jersey? No, that's exactly it. We knew we were playing those places. Go, yeah. go a thousand-something miles away, start the tour where you know you're going to have friends and you're going to kick some ass. And then hit all them spots on the way back. Yeah. And so we start in Chicago, 
And then we go to Minneapolis. <laughs> and we play that show with nobody. Oh, like, no. Remember there was like... Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. So Chris, <laughs> this is another Chris Spear moment. He finds a Guarus playing, and he like tracks down everybody in the band and the tour manager... And you got us pretty close to almost opening, but they were what was they were setting the lines up on stage yeah, or something. So so we we pass another van between Chicago and Minneapolis, and we saw a van broke down on the side of the road. Remember, and I said that's probably a band. Yeah. Right. So that that ends up being like Bile or Buzz Oven or yeah, whoever yeah, was opening. Was yeah, whoever was opening for Guar. So we get into Minneapolis, and there's like nobody there. I mean, this is it's like downtown, right in the middle of town, Minneapolis. It's not a bad looking place, but there's like like three kids there, right? And then I realize, like, I go walk around the block or something, and I see there's a line around the block of all these kids, all with like shirt, you know, metal shirts on and stuff. I find out Guar is playing like two blocks away, so I go over there and I'm like, "Well, our show's gonna suck." And you know, we already actually we played at like five o'clock and we were done. So I, I remember went, punching the wall, and it was just me and Mike moshing. <laughs> yeah. And we moshed the entire set so hard anyway. <laughs> but So I walk over to the other place, and I just walk in the back door, like where all the bands are walking in and stuff. And this is a big club, like a you know, like a truck-sized club. And I walk in there, and I said, hey, we're in a band that's playing right around the corner. I saw your opening band was broke down on the road. I was like, you know, we just played a really shitty show, and we're, we're ready to go if you want. And he's like... I would have, if you would have come in here 20 minutes earlier, I would have let you do it. But the Guar already started laying out all their like bloodlines across the stage and stuff. So they couldn't, they couldn't have somebody else come in and set up on top of that at that point. But the guy ended up giving us all passes. And remember, we went in to see Guar that night. It's like one of these things that just only a Chris would do because someone else would be like, oh, I don't want to bother someone. You were so fearless and just being like, hey, is this available? Can we make this happen? And I mean, so, again, we're on a U.S. tour in 1999. There isn't that little stupid box that says GPS. There is no cell phone. This is where we had to get used to using a map. Oh, yeah. So yeah, go, yeah. go into map time with us. Well, map time, you know what, though? My middle name, they always used to say, is like Rand fucking McNally. Like, I, Hell yeah, Chris yeah. Rand fucking McNally. I didn't use a map, and it wasn't like that chauvinist, like, I don't ask for directions thing. I just kind of went anyway and usually figured it out. But yeah, there was some times when we definitely had to, uh, you know, break out the map. Especially when you're inside these cities. But we had that big book map of the like... huge map, like yeah. an like atlas. <laughs> yeah, and... But, yeah, we had to use it quite a few times. And, and there was some, even some times where, you know, if we had a show canceled or we had a night off, I, I would be looking for shows the entire time we were there. But I think we really did. We were gone like 31 days and played like 26 shows. Or yeah. it was, we played just about every night. So. so we're in California, and the first California show was in Sacramento at a place called Bojangles, and it was sick. And then we're hanging out with an entire different universe of humans. Yep. And then you guys play Gilman. And then you guys play Coquetry and Powerhouse jump on and does a set. Yeah. But it's like, yo, at Gilman Street was the first time we played with Come and Correct. And our friend Chris Cap, who is the person who drew the first hoodie X hand for release that would become the floor punch thing. Chris Cap is also in Freight Train. The yep. drummer, and he's also a drummer for Bad Luck. Come and Correct is Judd on guitar. 
Is it Kevin on bass? No, I I don't even know. Does he have a bass player? He may not have had a bass player. (laughs) I don't even know they had a bass player. And then Gabby. And the show is All Bets Off, Dysphoria, Come and Correct, Kill the Man of Questions, and Page 99, which Page 99 is like a band now that's revered. Kill the Man of Questions is a Philadelphia band. Mike McKee and Andrew Martini would go on to be in a ton of very important queer punk bands. And it was just like one of these, like, you cannot pick another weird time that a bunch of different bands all were in that place, and it was our all of our first Gilman experience. It was a cool show, though. I, I was happy with that show. That show made me and Mike want to do Punishment just to come back and play Gilman. Yeah. And we literally did it a year later. Like, we're getting a band together, we're going back, we have to play Gilman. Like, it was so sick to be there, and I, it was so awesome that it was all our first times doing that. Gilman was like the CBGBs of the West Coast. Like at least in my Yo, in like the shitty lore. toilet, yeah, smelly no, people outside, a lot of graffiti, yeah, a lot of but, graffiti. Like but it was no, like, I mean it had that legend behind oh, it, it was of so all epic. these amazing shows. You know, you see like you know, like old Operation Ivy fly- flyers and stuff in there, and you know, did you did you do the whole payment thing where you had to go in and do the settlement? No, where like they all sit down and talk, or did Rick just pay you? No, Rick never. But I was we were like, paid so when by you the, did, the clubs. All not, right, so I know yeah. Gilman they had this thing where you sit down and you go. Well, how much? Here's how much we ha- money we have, and you split it up. Like you discuss how to split it up. I didn't know if there was a. No, there's always think funny shit just about. Came out and like handed us some <laughs> some cash. So I... we go down to Southern California, and this is a total Chris thing. We have a show at PCH. Do you remember the? I know. I don't know if you know. Do you remember who the opener was of the show we played? Like it was kind of yeah, small it was show. Yeah, you. So they invited tra- us to their house for a barbecue. The kid Alex, good kid, <laughs> who just actually just quit a Treyu this week. Really? Young kid, like no one knew them. Oh, they were kids, like the kid kids. Yeah. And just we were in a Treyu play to like twenty people at the, <laughs> the PCH club. And didn't their van or their their car, they had their mom's car. Yeah, their mom's car. It got hit out yeah. front or stolen or yeah. <laughs> I remember sleeping outside of that and somebody was like, Man, you shouldn't be out here Yeah, we're on. like, Oh, this I is was California. On, yeah, I was care. like, It's nice out here. I'm I'm using my backpack for a pillow, sleeping on the sidewalk. Somebody's like, Man, you should not be doing it. Bad neighborhoods in California are sneaky. Yeah, they don't, don't look like bad neighborhoods. No, it's the, the weather's too good. So uh, we had a tour, we had a show cancel, and you got us on a Friday night show that's epic by standards. Today. Remember the Nerve Agent show? At the Pound. No, not the Pound, at the PCH. Oh, at the, the PCH, yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you just ask somebody, like, how, how did you get us on that? Yeah, that, um, no, that was Rick. That was definitely Rick that did that. We had another show at the... Oh, no, wait. Maybe that wasn't. That wasn't. And no, I'll tell you why, because I, I know the they story. they didn't play. Yes. Yeah. We had... There was another time when we were... Down, see, I, this is why I need you, because you remember these details a lot better. There was another time we had a show in North Hollywood at an old airplane hangar they used yeah. to do shows at. That got canceled. So we ended up going back. This might have been how it ends, or it might have been the second time. With the, the second story. time it happens. So I'll, I'll let you know what happened. Right. So we had a show at another venue. We all pull up, and there's nobody there. And they don't remember it was like, the, we're like yeah. oh, I guess there's no show. So Rick, Rick to life is still not crazy, Rick, but he's still a pain in the ass. And Rick starts being a baby because you had got the PCH show. Yeah, yeah. Because there was a show that was canceled. And it was like a moment where it was like, is all of dysphoria going to beat up Rick? <laughs> and Sammy and Mick scare try to calm everybody down because we're like, we're like, yo, fuck you. Like, yeah. and he's going, I take you guys on tour. And you're like, look, motherfucker. 
you wouldn't have a tour if we didn't have our guys. Like, who the fuck are you to say you took us on tour? So it's a big argument, and we all end up chilling, but we get to play the PCH the next day. Dysphoria plays a packed place with Nerve Agents being the headliner. Come and Correct plays two songs. One of them is Crucified, and Cappy's so fucked up, he completely fucks up the breakdown. <laughs> and we're crying laughing. And that was the night that Shannon and Eddie, uh, Eddie Medina from Power Haste came down. And we get to stay in a Hilton hotel. Yeah. We thought we were balling. Shannon hooked it. Hooked Shannon that Williams, up. the best girl in the yeah. history of the world. Oh no, it, she she hooked us up at like this like downtown L.A. Hilton. We we're and, sitting in the hot tub, like. <laughs> and so, for anybody who didn't know, earlier in the earlier in the tour in Northern California, Shannon Williams opened their house her house to us. She's one of my longest best friends, one of the sweetest like loving humans. And just like a kind of person like, oh, I just met you. Oh, you're a cool band. Oh, you know, like, I love you guys. Come hang out. And it was like one of the coolest things just to have someone open in their home. So she not only came to that show, she brought Eddie Medina for Powerhouse down and came down for the Southern California shows and got us a spot at the hotel and threw like a hookup. So we bring, at the whole tour, we've been playing GoldenEye. Chris is driving most of the time, almost all the time. So there's other dudes in the band, me and Mike. Loser of the of the bottom four can't play the next round. So we just basically the whole tour is trying to not be number four in Goldeneye, so you can stay in. So we get to Hilton. The first thing we decided to do is figure out a way to set the TV up <laughs> to play the- Goldeneye in Hilton. <laughs> and then this is why I bring this up. Were you out for the shenanigans with the hot tub and Rick to Life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rick to Life is a mutant. He's got these long dreadlocks and he jumps in this awesome pool. <laughs> He gets out and his dreadlocks are completely dry immediately, and we're crying, <laughs> laughing. Like, how's he not a wet? It's like the dreadlock? predator in the yeah, pool. dreadlock. <laughs> literally, the most predator moment of Rick to like jumping out. Then he's sitting in a hot tub, and me and Mike jump in ass naked, and he freaks <laughs> out. And he gets super mad, so he starts throwing these beach chairs into the pool and gets us kicked out of the pool. So yeah. remember, that's the same weekend that we met. Uh, the Disciple guys. Yeah, no. Because we put you guys got that. Um, Jason, remember Nate? Jason, no one is a victim. Yep. He set you guys up with this cool pizza show in like Lake Elsinore or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, somewhere like halfway between uh, San Diego and LA. Like, yeah, out so there. Chris gets a show in Southern California that is basically like random jump on shows. Yeah, but with like no innocent victims. Well, so, so, they, so yeah, so, no, I'm like earlier on. And then we end Southern California playing like two sick Christian hardcore shows. We meet Dan. Quiggle from Disciple. He's yep. like the best guy. And later that comes in a big play with uh, cool Disc Warrior shows in Erie, Pennsylvania. And then you, we finish the tour at Showcase Theater, like the second greatest venue in the, the West Coast. Yep. With Notice and Victim and all these cast in stone. Um, I think all a Treyu played again. Yeah, Treyu played again. It was like the best way to end a, a West Coast tour that kind of like some of the shows were dodgy in the South. And it was like, holy shit. It was kind of cool, like how it ended. Yeah. You know, and also that in between Lake Elsinore and Showcase Theater, Eddie Medina, who is the best, somehow got drunk and lost like three boxes of Rick's merch. <laughs> he's freaking out about it. <laughs> he's freaking out. Where's my merch? Show? And then he's like, dude, I was drunk. You shouldn't let me take anything. I can't be trusted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, Eddie's still good. I, I still talk to him now. Uh, all the time. Yeah. He's, I mean, God bless. The one thing to say is like for all old guys saying, you don't know what the internet's like. For all of us now, without Facebook and Instagram, we wouldn't even know what each other yeah. are doing. I mean, I'm not talking, talking. I'm not having these deep conversations, yeah. but it's like funny little like Facebook things. It's just you know? great to all stay in touch, man. Yeah. It's great to not lose 
complete track of humans because life moves fast and we get older. So we kind of skip to the part where we're in Omaha, Nebraska, and we run into the band that we keep hearing about but we don't know about, Throwdown. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in Southern California, I was like, oh, you should check out Throwdown. And we had no idea what the fuck this band yeah, was. Yeah. like, who the fuck's this band? Then we're in Omaha, Nebraska, and we're, we're there. It's Dysphoria and Throwdown. I don't even know there's another band on the bill. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't either. I know it was like ridiculously hot. Yes, the hot. It was like, it was like the hottest day ever. So we got lost getting there. That's that, that's the time we ended up having to go to Kinko's. Yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> shit! <laughs> you want to tell that story or not really? I, uh, you don't have to. <laughs> Chris goes into the Kinko's to print out directions from the internet, and I sneak behind him and put my penis on his shoulder in front of <laughs> in the God middle of a Kinko <laughs> in, in Nebraska. <laughs> this is like a weekday. There's yeah. like business guys in there, like making <laughs> fun. I mean, on that tour, it was a lot of crazy shit, running around in the middle of a highway, like naked. Yeah, me yeah. and Mike were uh, just like that. That was kind of like what we did, just like do funny shit. So we meet Throwdown. We had the best time with them dudes. Did you already have that Minneapolis show? The second? No, time? I did not. Yeah. So, so they hooked us up with a show in St. Paul, Minnesota. So here we are. We don't know these guys when we're in their hometown. We meet them in the middle of goddamn nowhere, and they get us on a show like boom. Yeah. And that, that was that was a great show, too, that we ended up going up there for. And, and you know, um, we ended up, we end up eventually at the Milwaukee Metal Fest. And you're like, how did you, did you like, do you, like, at this time, I don't want to get too far into Milwaukee Metal Fest, but it was a big metal fest that happened in Milwaukee and then later in New Jersey. And Chris gets us on a show where Cradle Filth is headlining, but also Holiday in the Sun punk rock tour is there the same day. So <laughs> yeah. we had the best of every single... Oh, no, po- it wasn't Holiday, it was a veil. No, no, remember? Oh, because no. Because Murphy's Law and uh, it was all the same big room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay, Veil was one, a big a band on that bill as well. Yeah. So, like, so Murphy's Law, Exploited, Avail, Cradle of Filth, yeah. and Disworia is on one of these side stages. Oh, I, How did I you get on that? Biohazard was up there too, and Sepultura, like actually like good Sepultura was one what of the was, headliners. What was the what got you guys how did you get on that? Um, so that guy man, Jack Koshik. Jack, Jack Koshik. So I remember sending him back in the day when I I told you I had to get that book your own fucking life book. And I made my press kit to send out to record labels. I think I saw sent like three of them out to record labels. But then I remember hearing about this Milwaukee Metal Fest every year, and I sent one to him. And when I got that, he, he contacted me back and was like, yes, I would like to have you guys come play. So it was that easy. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't anything really hard. And then maybe, you know, he may have gotten wind that we were playing a bunch of other shows too. So we weren't just like a local band from Philly that needed or from Lansdale that needed to jump onto his giant metal fest, you know, but he, he definitely, he reviewed what we sent and, and accepted it. So it wasn't, you know, I, I, I was never the type that would like call somebody up and beg them and be like, Oh, you have to, you know, it was just like, you know, Hey, this is it. If you want to book us, you can. And he did. And then just, later we played one of his Jersey ones, too. I just always remember just being in that weird side of band room almost. And yeah. there's like all these different people. There's like Waddy. Like it's almost too much. And you're like, you know, you got to remember, I'm only 19. So I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. 
And then when the you tour- had your first backstage pass and you literally no. could go yeah, literally backstage. Felt like a Wayne's World moment. Yeah, and when you're going back and seeing Milwaukee seeing too. And, and, so it's like so yeah, Wayne's World, like yeah. backstage, backstage. Yeah, you're going back and like like Evan Biohazard sitting there talking to somebody. You're, you're definitely too nervous. You don't want to go talk to him. And none of us were like on somebody's jock enough to like go up and ask for an autograph. So we would just be like, holy oh, dude, there's that guy. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of pointing and holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Obviously, well, you kind of yada, yada, yada through. And we end the sh- tour in Chicago at the Fireside Bowl. And in a uh, another situation, it, the entire tour ends with me and Mike Brown in jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. We get into a fight with a whole other tour story that should just be for its own episode. <laughs> yeah. But uh, me and Mike get into a fight defending the honor of the Disoria van. <laughs> and Chris has to deal with taking two people from Philadelphia <laughs> out of a... What happened? Did you guys forget that we were in jail? Like, no, what no, was no, the no. Deal? I knew you so, were in jail. So, so I called. I called. So it's like West Chicago was like... The, the neighborhood was like Cicero, I think, or something. And, and I do remember when I was talking to the cop later, like he was like, you know, you guys shouldn't be screwing around like this here. A lot of times these problems get worked out themselves in these neighborhoods. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was definitely not a spot to be starting shit. But uh, so you and Mike got hauled off to jail and I put everybody else up in a hotel. And then I drove back out to the jail. When I got there, you guys weren't, they weren't ready to release you or anything. So I was waiting in the jail. Probably, I was probably a room over from where you guys were sitting. Now I remember hearing your story about how, uh, it was either you or Mike asked if, uh, if they took all your shoelaces off and handcuffed you to the bench. And then one of you said, uh, what would happen if I turned into a werewolf right yeah, now? Yeah, Mike, Mike did it. Yeah. Yo, man, what would happen if I turned into a werewolf right now? I'm like, fuck, Mike, that's not a good thing. That's not bringing that stuff I could just picture that, though. Like, <laughs> you sitting in there, somebody else on the bench next to you, like, inching away. Like. Uh, yeah. Including him calling me a white motherfucker. <laughs> Come on, you white motherfucker. And then all of a sudden, the whole cell's like, yeah, kill him. Kill that motherfucker. <laughs> and I was crying laughing because we're just trolling people. Um, uh, and then we drive home. And uh, Chris drops us over the train. We take Philadelphia Transit, a.k.a. SEPTA, and I get to the end station, eight blocks from my mother's house, and I get arrested again <laughs> because in Wyoming we bought blowguns. <laughs> I had the blowgun attached to the side of my bag. Like a, like a samurai. Yeah, like, 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 like a, a samurai sword. sword and a big blowgun attached to my bag. These things were like five foot long, <laughs> too. Five foot long blow- and he's like, what's that? I'm like, ah, oh, it's a blowgun. He's like, huh? And I didn't think too much of it because I was kind of naive. And I get off, and I'm in cuffs, and Mike took my school bag home. They kept the, <laughs> the blowgun. He went and got my mom. They locked me up in the 15th district. And I had the, uh, forever, I, I kept the property receipt. It said, Dysphoria Hardcore Jacket <laughs> Blowgun. And they had to let me go, because in Philadelphia, if you don't have the darts and the blowgun, it's not all against and the law. Lost, all the but, darts were stuck in the hotel rooms? No, walls. they were in my school bag that oh. Mike took back to my mom's house. So, so I was in jail uh, Sunday night. <laughs> we drove on Monday. And I think I got home Tuesday morning or something like that. <laughs> and Tuesday Tuesday afternoon, I'm in jail for like five hours, like 10 blocks from my house. <laughs> and that was the end of my first U.S. tour. And 
Those blowguns almost got us in trouble in uh, California, too. Remember oh, yeah, we, yeah. We went running up the side of the mountain because we saw yeah, snow yeah, yeah, yeah. in August. And then the, the California Highway Yeah, we got Patrol chips pulled. on us as soon as we got... Yeah, well, the, the, the guys in the... So, so me and Joe and maybe Mike, I don't know, go running up the side of the mountain so we could throw snowballs at each other in August because, you know, we're crossing the Donner Pass in, on 80 going just into California. Well, right when we get out and run up the mountain, this uh, California Highway Patrol car pulls up behind the van. Well, we didn't realize that their their logo still looks exactly like it did in Chips. Yeah. Right? So the cop's waiting outside for us. We get back in the van. I'm sitting in there rifling through looking for the registration card and stuff. Cop comes up to the door. The guys in the back are all humming the Chips song. (laughs) (laughs) And then I remember, so then the other cop pulls up, and then they came out and pulled out all of our our, uh, blowguns and the the guitar cases to make sure they weren't, like, machine guns in them or something and (laughs) and tossed everything on the side of the road. So this is what's interesting is, so, like, that ends, and right off the bat, you guys are planning to go back out, and the hood's... This warrior, um, above this world split, is already working out because of the connections made in California, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you guys go to West West Side, which is the place where Hapri recorded the infamous Satisfaction. God forbid. I mean, there's so many insane records that came yeah, out no, of that, that place. That place was like the place on the East Coast, I think, to make a heavy album. What made you jump to do that? Uh, we wanted something that sounded really good. We wanted something that sounded kind of professional. I mean, our sound doesn't lend itself to sloppy recording because a lot of it is fast. A lot of it's like precise. So we needed it to sound good and that's what we wanted to do. So we, we saved up a lot of money and just went in and did it. Now, again, this where doesn't just like come home and rest on laurels. You're right back to booking Lansdale shows, and at this time you're doing Lansdale shows. You're paying, you're bringing bands out. Like I mean, you had the freight trains, second to none. You had all these bands from different places, but you were also doing this thing where the revenue from the show, because you're a show promoter, you'd pay the bands up really well, but then you'd also keep and reinvest it back into the band. Oh yeah, well, and you know, to some degree now, I, I probably couldn't get away with that because I wasn't paying the bands great, but you know, if we would do a show in Lansdale for seven bucks and have 400 people show up, which was definitely possible, you know, probably more likely around that time, you know, we would, that whole $2,800 that we made from that show, we, we would give 500 to the room and then maybe another five, 600 to the bands. Which is still more than what most of those bands were getting paid to yeah. play anywhere. Yep. And then we would take the rest and just throw it in our metal box. And when we got enough money in our metal box to record, we went and recorded. And at this stage, again, the the connections made in California. Uh, I think that we do Shockwave show first or the disciple show in the winter time first remember we drove all up in the winter and there was all the dead deer and shit um i think the shockwave show was so, no I, no you know it, no it was it was late that winter we did the december show so yeah for non-pennsylvania and for younger pennsylvania people shockwave is from pennsylvania it's kind of like a insane members of this uh disciple brothers keeper they play transformer Videos in the background, they're pretty fucking epic. They played once a year at a thing called Shocktoberfest. 
disciple from Erie, Pennsylvania, Dave, Dan Quiggle, Adam. I mean, just one of the great unsung PA hardcore bands who have a bigger legacy in Christian hardcore. If Disciple played in Erie, it was something special. Oh, Remember yeah. that show? It was Buried Alive, Sworn Enemy, Death Threat, All Out War, Dysphoria, and we had to drive through the fucking snow. Yeah, no, and it was completely worth it. It was one yeah. of the best shows we've ever played. That was one of the best all PA hardcore shows that I can even think of, Yeah. period. So, um, it sucks that we didn't talk that much about CC's, but thinking about PA hardcore. What was your favorite CC show that you guys played, you think? Because uh, you guys started playing there pretty regularly before all this we're talking uh, about now, right? Yeah, th- there was a good, um, there was a couple that really stood out. There, there was a VOD show up there that was amazing. Um, I, I remember that because uh, you, I, I'd give the sound guy a blank tape and he would record our set. Well, we played right before VOD the one night, so he just kept recording. So I wow. had this live VOD tape forever. And I remember I lent it to Todd. And he lost it. No, he didn't lose it. He put it in his that, that Nova that he had. Oh, the beat up shit. Yeah, oh, he yeah. stuck it in there and it, the car ate it. Right, but I was like that. That live VOD tape sounded better than their demo at the time, and that's all they had out. Or maybe they had that seven inch, that still, still seven yeah. inch at the time. But um, that demo sounded so good, and that show was so good. It was so packed in there. But I mean, a lot of the memorable shows we had up there were the smaller ones with Strength for a Reason and Crutch, and you know, shows where we would just hang out all day with like Walt. In that back, they had that volleyball court in the back. Yeah. We would just sit out there and, and hang out. And, you know, Walt was back there drinking his little Mickey's with uh, Mickey's crew. Whole crew. Yeah. But, no, I mean, but I mean, when you talk about the big shows, there was there was a Fury of Five show that um, it was Fury of Five, Mushmouth, and us up there. That's when we got, we, actually, I think you might have been there with us. We One of our cabinets got stolen that night. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And then we had to play Boston the next night. Or no, it was our bass guitar got bass stolen. Bass guitar got stolen. Yeah, and we were playing Boston the next night. And when we played Boston the next night, we actually bought a new bass guitar, like with the money we made from our merch from the Fury of Five show the night before. There was a weird thing where Judd was accused of threatening uh, Chris on the guitar or something like that. Like someone stole something. I remember there was a whole kerfuffle. Judd lost a cabinet one time. Yeah, that's right. Too. That's what it was. And that was at Scarlet's. Yeah, and I, I remember that too. He He like. He asked Mushmouth, because I guess they played right after us or something like that. He's like, did you guys take my cabinet? And yeah. then they were like, Yo, why, why, we are take you, it? why are you accusing me? And we're like, he's like, I'm not accusing you. I just said, hey, you know, did you get it I by mistake? I think Judd never had a good interaction with No, I, he, would, he could be a little awkward sometimes, and maybe that was, you know, maybe it was just a miscommunication, I'm sure. But um, that was definitely tense for a little bit. But, you know, I, I never... Had any ill will to Mushmouth? I no, love you guys, those guys. That's yeah. what I was going to kind of get to is, Dysphoria for being like as metallic as you were. You guys played all four corners of these of the Pennsylvania hardcore scene. Yeah, I mean, you guys were going to Clearfield, Pennsylvania. Did you ever play any of them shows with Option in uh, Carlisle or anything like weird York places? No, we did. We played that uh, Harrisburg, and then um, uh, what was that place called? It was a record store. Um, Not double decker, but there's another no, one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the one in the one in York where like option would have. Yeah, they had, there was a show at Fury of Five, and there was like not a lot of people there. <laughs> and there was a time where I think we all came out for a 25 delay show out that way. Yeah. So we were banned in York. More people would come to Baltimore from Baltimore up to York for that. Yep. So I remember uh, we we were gonna make shirts that said Dysphoria banned in York. There was a fire hall show out there that we were playing, and I remember um, 
It, maybe it wasn't even a fire hall, but I remember like the fire marshal came out and told them they have to turn it down, and we didn't turn it down. So like this whole fight happened between the kid that was doing the show at this hall, and it ended up like the mayor of the town showed up to yell at this kid because we were too loud while we were playing, and he threatened something like, you'll never play here again. You'll never be able to do a show here again, and we were going to make you know shirts dysphoria banned in York, but never did. But uh, I know Howard Ends played a huge show in York at this biker bar out there, which I, I never liked playing biker or bars, not necessarily biker bars, but never really liked playing straight-up bars, but th- this one was really good. So in line... Dysphoria does a U.S. tour, come back, crush it even more with regular shows, East Coast. Some of the best shows after the U.S. tour happened for Dysphoria, and then the release of Dysphoria, Above This World, and Hoods on West Coast Records, West Coast Worldwide Records, which was Mikey's label. And then Dysphoria membership completely shifted drastically. Like It was like a one-by-one pullout. And you ended up just changing the name of the band to How It Ends and go to a completely different sound. How did you, like, do you want to talk from hindsight or do you want to talk from, like, at the time, like, how, what was going through your head with, like, keeping momentum of a band going with all the membership changing and the different people, then the sound shift, and then you had one singer, and then we, you know, we'll go through that whole thing. Yeah, so the the How It Ends thing, it, it was just kind of, we sort of reached our end, you know. Where I remember in the dis- punishment recording, you telling us, like, all the stuff that's going to happen. Yeah, and, and it was just kind of like, uh, and I remember that. I remember actually going down there for, for your recording. That was actually fun. Th- there's stories about that, too. Your recording. <laughs> oh, the worst. But, <laughs> but uh, no. And Reek I, I mean, was there, too. Yeah, R.I.P. Reek, he was there. Yeah. So, so we kind of got to the point where we were saying, um, actually, I think I sung background vocals on. Yes, the you did. Yeah, you sound you sung them on uh, at least at how it ends, I think. But so what happened was um, we were kind of growing apart. Like uh, Neil wanted to write some different type of stuff. He got a seven then, string guitar. Yeah, he got a seven string guitar. He wanted to do some other stuff. Todd seemed to want to do like his kind of thing. Like he was getting into like these lighter bands, these singing bands, like these into another bands and stuff like that. So some of that, there was some tension there, but there was just like, Neil was like, Hey, I want to write this new heavy stuff. And I think we have to just start something new because it's not dysphoria. So I was like, yeah, I'm down, you know, let's just do it. And then we did it and it it didn't seem like it was Todd's type of stuff or else Todd didn't have the time. I don't even remember how it exactly went down, but the whole, how it ends started with just, Neil writing this other stuff that was crazy, and Kevin was involved with it at first. Kevin was the first one to be like, look, I can't do it. So I got this, I got another bass player that we knew growing up. Growing up, His name was Neil Chase. He came in, played bass during the recording. We went back up to Tracks East for that. And then uh, right away we got, Neil was done. So I was like, okay, so how it ends started is me and Neil, and now Neil's gone. <laughs> So and it was you, and you were basically left with a new band of new people. I remember that. I, I had a new band of new people, and then you know we brought through like Dave Heck. Uh, there was a Kevin Albertson. There was this kid Chris Nigro out of Doylestown. Like we had a whole rotating cast of guitar players and stuff like that. What was but, pushing you to keep going? Because of the difference between Dysphoria, which was like you guys from basically high school on, and then it's like you was it was just you just didn't want to give up doing the band yet. I, I think that's what for for me it was like. 
I, I definitely knew I wanted to keep going. I wanted to try something new. I, I could see, I, I could see a light at the end of the tunnel where I, I could be like, you know what? I could just tour. That's all I could do if I really wanted this to is, do this. This is where I ask you the questions. At this time, how many people have you turned down for like touring positions? <laughs> what do you mean, like uh, drumming positions? Were like, oh, oh, uh, there's been plenty. I mean, really, I'm. I'm no, very... I mean like, unless I'm mistaken, and uh, you've been asked to play by other bands, like yeah, Phil, yeah. Can you do you want to tell names or you don't want to say no? Names? All right, all right. <laughs> no, because so, so Chris is there's Chris is, one that I'm. I, I almost regret, but I mean, you're sitting poolside. Yeah, you're a father, and we'll get into like some of the awesome shit you're doing now with your regular life. Yeah, but Chris turned down some big opportunities in heavy metal and hardcore that people will be like, I can't believe he said no to. But I, I just got to give you credit for being like, oh, that sounds cool, but it's not my thing. And yeah. I got to say, like, in hindsight, I don't know if you'd have this right now that we're sitting on if you did that. No, probably not. And, and you know, that is, I, I feel with me, I'm a lot of luck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there's something else behind this, but a lot of times when I do turn something down, I find out later that, man, that, that, if I would have done that, it, it wouldn't have, yeah, I would have maybe been able to tour for another couple of years, but I probably would have come back a much different guy. You know, I avoided all the drugs. I avoided, uh, you know, cheating on my wife and now you've been with the same woman yeah, since it, you met her in high school. No matter where we were at on tours, I mean, even the second tour that we did was like just like a week or so. Cindy was out with us. Like I've never watched you in any single way have anything but eyes for her. And I mean, obviously, you have uh, <laughs> a beautiful teenage daughter and a younger daughter, and like you have a full ass life because you just invested in her. But you were never that dude. Like I think I saw you drink two beers ever on a tour. Like, yeah, I'm like not, you were never like a drunk dude. No. I'm so, not, I'm definitely not straight edge. I'm not going to fall down that. I'm not going to label myself. I, that's one thing you, you learn about me. I'm like a, always a keep every option open type of person. Not necessarily like a fence walker. Like I'm going to play straight edge this day and not straight edge. I never claim straight edge. No, you're never, always kind of like, if I, I, I don't do a lot, but what I want to do, I'll do it when I do it. Yeah. So how it ends. I know you guys went to California. You guys, we met each other on the Shattered Realm tour in 2005, we got to play a show together there. You're playing shows locally. Obviously, you know Thorpe Records is putting you out. But like, when did you? Was it the business from your father getting more busy and he was getting ready to stop out, or just you just got tired of doing How It Ends? What made you transition into what you're doing now? So How It Ends. I mean, it started there. There was that first singer Ross. Yeah. And, and I think like as far as like a singer goes. He was good. Yeah, like, he, he was cool. If like he had a cool vibe, he was almost a little, little too like invested in the vibe. You know what I well, mean? Well, that's like, exactly it. Like it, he it wanted work. to be a singer. It didn't work for hardcore. Yeah, but he could have been a great. Like he would have been an awesome like new, new like with in Power Trip or something like yeah. that. He could have stepped right into that role. And pulled that off, like R.I.P. to Riley, yeah. which is like crazy that we're sitting here R.I.P. in this whole episode. I know, but but like, but like or Pantera or something like like he had that front man, he was that guy. Yeah, but absolutely was that did not bode well in the hardcore scene. Now later on, or around that time, it sort of did with Lamb of God. Yeah, you know what I mean. But Lamb of God came up in the hardcore scene. They yeah, came and up Randy, as Burton Randy's still the most chill dude in the universe. No, I I know, but but they. 
him and Ross were kind of that same guy, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. He's definitely a, a front man, a showman, but coming straight into the hardcore scene and him didn't work very well. And I think if I could have invested a little bit more time into him and stuff like that, I think that that would have worked. But it definitely, when it didn't and, and he was out, then bringing Gravity Head back in was pretty easy, but it changed that band completely. Oh, yeah, it became sing-alongs, it became vibe, and then I had actually booked you guys on one of my shows, and you do a Dysphoria song. Yeah. How was that playing Dysphoria with not with only the singer from Dysphoria and you in it? I, you know, to, to me, it's all the same. Like I can. So just, you were happy, you were yeah, with like, yeah, no yeah. emotion. No, I, I'm not, like... I, I won't lose sleep the night before thinking about like planning things out. Like it's kind of just a, Hey, we'll practice this song a couple times before we go and we'll try it out. But I can't remember if there was a definitive, we're doing this last show or it was quietly amongst us. This is the last time. And then obviously there was obviously return shows for dysphoria. Yeah. Well, no, we never had a, this is dysphoria's last show. (laughs) Yeah. Because you knew you guys would eventually get back and do shit. Yeah. So after how it ends kind of like died off and the reason how it ends kind of slowed down and died off was you were a father. I I was a father. Gravity head was not a father, but he was taking over his father's business. business He became his grandfather's business, became his father's business. And then, became yeah. his business. So he became too busy to really start to do it. And at that time, this is when the internet's coming out. So yeah. bands like, you know, CDC can make a, a MySpace page and have a million hits on it and tour the whole world off of a MySpace page. It was a different it was a different game then. And I'm not saying I didn't adapt to it, but I didn't really have the energy to or I didn't have the band members that wanted to support it as well. Like I couldn't keep going on tour because I didn't have people that could possibly tour with. So, you know, that's kind of where where we sort of let it go with how it ends. And then once we let it go with how it ends, I definitely had the itch the whole time. You know, so as soon as somebody asks us to play Dysphoria, we're like, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> now you guys played this hardcore, um, and it was awesome just to see you guys up there again. Yeah, you gave us a great spot too. That the, the at that uh, Starlight Slight Ballroom. Yeah, that that was. Uh, I think we played right after. Um, uh, it was a Saturday night, I believe. And yeah, we, I remember we, you guys getting up there, and Bob Wilson being like, "What do you think?" And I'm like, "I can't wait. <laughs> like, no, I don't care it, what it anything. Was, I can't wait." It was great. You, you, we had a great spot, and it, it was so much fun. And I remember Judd was late, so we were all stressed out. Yeah. remember that, like. He he showed up like ten minutes before we were supposed to go on, but yeah, it was it, that was really good. The Chromags played right after us. I remember that, like tearing my stuff down and watching them play, and I'm like, oh my god, like this is an amazing show. I think it was Chromags that year would have been the Saturday Night Headliner. Yeah, yeah. So when do you just focus on work and what brings you to like like how? I mean, I remember we had our conversation. Like six years ago, where you're like, hey, I kind of run my dad's company now. Like, go through all that. Well, I mean, he's still here. Yeah. He, he's he's starting to, you know, he's got a place in Florida. So, right now, he's actually up here a lot more than he would be. But, yeah, as he's starting to move down to Florida more and more, that, I, you know, I'm the one that's sort of handling most of the day-to-day stuff. So, here's a place. guy who was a fry cook, became a chef, started taking animal parts around to sell them to colleges, who is now a successful businessman who's able to give his son, hey, it's going to be yours soon. How Did you think anything from hardcore 
and all the different management stuff was disadvantaged. Any of the stuff that besides, because you were doing how long? I mean, I guess I'm asking a bunch of questions at once, but how much of what you learned through pushing the band and doing the things and dealing with people, how much does that relate back to what you're doing now and the job that you hold within the company since you're no longer driving the van? You know, the, the crazy thing is, is that I almost catch myself sometimes. Like when I pick up an office phone, this is how I used to book the band back in the day. Like, uh, you know, you pick up the phone and you dial. It's a co- old corded phone. So that's what yeah. your office phone looks like, a corded phone. And I could answer the, or I could say, hey, this is Chris from Dysphoria. Like, I, I almost catch myself still to this day saying that. So that was what I would do when I booked tours or when I booked the band to do stupid things. Or just when I called somebody up. You know what I mean? Like, hey, this is Chris from Dysphoria. So, but th- the way you, you make a deal or, or the way you deal with people, the way you're sort of selling yourself to them is the exact same thing I used to do when I was trying to book the band before. You know, if somebody would be like, well, why should I book you? You know, who the fuck are you? And why why should you be playing my show in Virginia tonight? You know, I, I would have to sell myself. And it's kind of what we do now with, you know, when I call somebody up and we're working out setting up new business or setting up new deliveries or anything else with the company. It's amazing to me to think that so much of what I learned in my teens helps me. And I'm in, I just hit my forties and I think about you and your life. And I think about all the drive that you have and your personality and the way that you can just break the ice and start talking. So I'm not surprised that you're put in this position and it's, this is, I mean, you never hit college. No, this is all self-taught stuff. And it's the drive and motivation. Is it the same or what's the different drive and motivation versus I'm going to get my band booked? Is it just like thriving and pushing for your family? What's the drive? Yeah, I mean, now it's not necessarily I'm thriving and pushing for my family, but it's every task that I start to do. Again, I, I go back to the obsessiveness and, the, you know, the the kind of way that I will... I will push myself sometimes way past what everybody, what anybody else would, you know, when anybody else would give up on something and even for like ridiculous menial tasks, I will take it way too far over and over and over again. And, you know, I've been called manic by people. I've been called obsessive by people. And, you know, certainly the one thing that you said, you know, where we're kind of alike in this way. Some people would say, oh, that's good. But some people would say, you both share the same mental illness. So Definitely. We're, you know what I we mean? We have the like, same crazy in us. And and that's, that's I think, part of it. You know, it, it's a little bit of crazy. And coming up in the hardcore and a punk rock scene and stuff like that definitely gives you a different attitude with it. You know, where you're less likely to bow to authority or take no for an answer. Because you're writing your own story. You're not, you're not waiting on somebody else. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So it's 2020. You're the father of some children. We're on a conversation and it's like a light conversation, but you're explaining to me essentially how you may have to run for school board because you hate what's going on with the school. Yeah. And I was like, this is the most Chris shit <laughs> I've ever heard because of course it's not like, yeah, man, we got to do something about the school. It's like, I'm going to have to run and fix this whole thing. So lay that whole thing out for me. Yeah, well, you know, we moved up here, and um, 
So I'll go back. My, my oldest daughter, um, Brooklyn. When she yeah, Brooklyn, when she's going from sixth grade or fifth grade into sixth grade, we were. Um, she she goes to the school at the end of the year and they do that scoliosis test where the kid bends over and the nurse measures the thing up your back. Nurse said, "Hey, she's got a curve in her spine. You should see a doctor." We see the doctor. The doctor says, "Oh, curve's a little weird. You should see an orthopedic doctor." See an orthopedic doctor. He's like, "You got to get an MRI." So. You know, fast forward another week, um, I take Brooklyn down to CHOP in Philly and uh, get her MRI on a Friday night, come back up here Saturday, and um, we're driving to the shore to go to the beach for the week. Uh, As we're driving down there, I get a call from her doctor on a Saturday morning, so I'm like, oh, that's kind of out of place. He's like, we saw something on the MRI we need to get her back in to see an oncologist right away. And I'm wow. like, what oncologist? That's like cancer doctor, right? And he's like, yeah. So, you know, going forward then, they, they tell us she has a tumor the size of a potato. You know, it's like 70 millimeters or something. It's big. And uh, that's why her spine was curved around this tumor. So, you know, she goes through all of her her surgery and everything else. She is like like the strongest kid in the world, like, this didn't even phase her, you know, where she had this giant tumor removed. They cut part of her spine out. They cut part of her diaphragm out. I remember you going down to chop a lot at that time. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we did have to go down to chop a lot. But um, but past all that, she, she heals up really good. But um, during that time, she's going from elementary school into middle school. And I, I go over to the middle school and say, listen, you know, my daughter's gone through this cancer thing. She's also moving from elementary to middle. So she's a little nervous about this. I, I'm not sure how much school she's going to miss. So, you know, I'm just coming over to get her books and stuff for the beginning of the year. The principal sits me down, gives me his personal cell phone number. And is like, anything you need, you call me whenever you want. Wow. Great guy. I mean, wow. totally put my mind at ease. There's a teacher in that school. Some some girl I went to high school with is now a teacher. This is the summertime. She's there. It's like 6 o'clock at night. She's in there like setting up her classroom. She talks to me for a little bit. I'm like, this is a great school. Everything about this. So my daughter goes to school for a year at this school. And then the next year they're like, um, you know, the administration's like, we have to close this school. Um, you know, the boiler's going to go bad. The school's in terrible shape. So I'm like, that's a bunch of bullshit. I've been in that school a bunch of times. There's nothing wrong with it. So I start going to school board meetings and yelling at them. Then I then I get a copy of the blueprints for the thing, and I'm laying them out. Where did you get the copy of the blueprints? Uh, no, they have to. All that stuff's public knowledge. So you so you basically okay. You're going full Chris. Okay. No, continue. I'm going full. Yeah, believe me, this obsessiveness doesn't stop. Right. So I get a copy of the blueprints, and at the time we're building our building in Coopersburg for my work. So, you know, I, I'm speaking to engineers and stuff. I bring a copy of them to one of our engineers. He looks at it. He's like, yeah, that's a bunch of bullshit. This building's fine. You know, there's nothing. So I start going. I start arguing with them, and I'm arguing with this administration back and forth. They don't listen to me. They blow me off. And then um, they do it again in another year. They close another school. So I'm like, at that time, there was nine guys on the school board. Not one of them had kids in the school. They were all like businessmen that were looking to cut taxes. So I'm like, that's a bunch of bullshit. I'm going to go in there and try to make sure that at least somebody's standing up for, you know, the kids in this district in the district. So that's what I did. And uh, how long have you been? How long ago was that? This was 2019 is when I finally ran. OK. Uh, I mean, I tried to get on. Um, they fired somebody because they found out he had a criminal record while he was on there. And they, you know, they had to remove him from the board. I did apply for his seat. But of course, the ones that 
were already seated get to nominate the next one. So they're not going to nominate the guy that's so been going nepotistic. in there yeah, yelling at him. So, so I ran, and for me to run, um, again, this kind of goes back to, to my roots in how I used to do things with the band. So it, for the first thing I do is make flyers up. <laughs> of course you do. I, this, is, <laughs> you know? this is why we had to bring this up, because this, yeah. is, this goes back to you know 101 Chris. So the first, yeah, I make flyers up, and, and I start going to like, the, there's like a little township fair at like the fire hall, you know, that they use to raise money to buy a new fire truck or whatever. I'm going there, sticking these things on everybody's windshields at their car and handing them out to people that are walking out. And then, um, and then after that, I, uh, I, I start knocking on people's doors, right? I knocked on this this town, this school district up here. The the population of the entire district's thirty three thousand people, right? My zone of the school district's about eleven thousand people. I knocked on eleven hundred doors myself. Wow, you know what I mean? Like, just went out and knocked on the doors and talked to everybody. And you know, I. I did go to this like class at the Doylestown library where they tell you, you know, have your script spend less than two minutes at each door. But you know me, like by talking to me, I'm talking to everybody for a half an hour at a time. So I'm going out. So you spent basically 500 hours. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going out at at 10 in the morning and then uh, staying out until like way after dark, just knocking on people's doors. And, And I won the election. I had more votes than any of the other candidates. Because you actually took the time and did exactly what you've done this whole time. Yeah. So where does this take you to now? What do you what what do you, what do, I mean? We spoke on the phone about this, but I don't know how to exactly introduce what you're going through. But it seems like it wasn't just a fuck you, but like you're really actually standing up for people. So what are you going through right now? Yeah. So with with the schools, um, you know, it, it's a constant push and pull between you know. Teachers not feeling safe to return because they don't want to get sick. They real and you know people realize that the kids don't necessarily get sick from this, but they could pass it to the teachers. So, you know, there's definitely a balancing act between, you know, getting the, as many kids back into school as we can, and also making the place a safe place for the teachers. So, what now? What the the crazy thing is is. I'm standing up. I mean, you're you're here at my house now. I, I am not in the position to have to worry about this. My wife doesn't work. She stays home with our kids. If our kids are forced to go to virtual school, we'll be just fine. But right now, I'm fighting for the, the families where they have, like, one working parent who can't stay home with their kids. And now, because the school district decided they need to go virtual for the first four weeks, or, virtual or hybrid, now all those families have to spend money to send their kids to daycare. What about the families who don't even have the technology or Wi-Fi? How does well, that even? That, that's the one advantage to living in a in a nice, rich suburban area like this. Uh, our school district gave everyone a laptop. Wow, everyone! And there was even some people that didn't have internet access. Our school district went out and bought Wi-Fi access points. And gave them to, I mean, there, there was only a few dozen of them that they had to buy. So, everybody should be, at this point, hooked up. So, I mean, that that is one of the advantages to doing this. And, you know, people people like to say, they're like, boy, you joined the school board at a great time. You know, there's all this shit going on. And, you know, it, right now, nobody likes, there's no good answer to how you bring kids back into school. So, I'm like, actually, I did join it at the right time. Because now's the time when... 
the the disadvantaged kids are going to get the most advantage taken from them if we don't do this right. When you say disadvantage, are you speaking about people with like physical ailments and mental deficiencies? Well, yeah, and- them too. But th- that was the first, you know, that was the first argument that we had that we have to make sure that those kids with those. IEPs and the kids that you know. I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know. IEP is individualized education. So, so they have like you know some of those kids are one on one with a teacher. You know, they can't be in a classroom with a bunch of other kids. Some of them need. There's kids in the school with feeding tubes. You know, the kids in wheelchairs and stuff like that. You know, we got to get those kids in the school. You know, and then we have to get the kids in that that don't have anyone at home to support them to to be at home virtual. You know what I mean? But right now, we're not there yet. So th- that's the fight I've been having. So This is the most epic circle because for me and what I'm trying to do with this podcast is talk to people who I admire, who've had influence, or just people who are teaching themselves or just have a drive that you just don't see and try to show other people just how you can acquire anything whether it's skills whether you can attain stuff just by drive and and focusing and and continue to pressure the situation and we've just talked for over two hours like it was 10 minutes and you've taken me from a dusty drum set in an attic to now you're a school board you know fighter of justice meanwhile you're still Mm -hmm. a parent and you're still the same dude in every single way do you see the cycle of how this same kind of like driving you continues or is, unless I'd bring it up, you would never even thought about it? No, I, I know it's there. In fact, I'm reminded of it constantly. Like if I go to a school board meeting and, and I'm told this isn't how things are done, you know, and I say, well, this is how I'm doing it. So this is how it's going to be done now. And, you know, I'm not. I'm not somebody that's just going to walk into a situation and, and take no settle. For answer. Yeah, and settle for for something just because that's how it's been done forever. You know, I, I, I'm somebody that's going to try to figure out and solve every problem that's put in front of me, and and I'm going to obsessively do it. So, so wrapping this up, do you have anything else you'd like to say? I, I did want to mention one thing. I, I mean. And your your memory seems to be much better than mine, but uh, I'm a, I'm I have this weird <laughs> ability to visualize things and just go back to it. We were in the southwest of the U.S. somewhere, probably 1999, the first tour. Tucson. Tucson. Scrappies. Out well, we're driving oh, out in drive. the desert, middle of the night again. One of those times, everybody else in the van's asleep. Me and you talking, and we're talking just crazy shit all night. But that's the first time it was ever brought up that you were like, I want to do a big festival. I want to do a hardcore festival. Yeah. This is, you know, 18, 19-year-old Joe Hardcore. You know, nothing. Not a penny to your name. Nothing. This is back then you wanted to do this, and, and you've done it. I mean, you are, for, for as much you, as you've been... Kissing my ass tonight. You are just as much so. So we have to have one of these podcasts about you and hoping, what drove you to get to where you are. I'm hoping that in this podcast that we just did, people see the foundation of the kind of drive and the kind of lessons that I had to learn to get there. Like it wasn't me logging on a computer and just becoming cool on the internet. Like you know, as as you can remember me from me being a long hair. 
I mean, we played together as LTD, and I told you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I told you, yo, my band sucks. <laughs> that <laughs> is a, how you introduced yeah. yourself hey, to what's me. what's up? I'm Joe, hardcore. My band fucking sucks. I can't wait for us to break up. But, yo, check this out. Here's a flyer. Like, I carried flyers everywhere with me, and I, I just didn't want to be at home, which is a key factor. It's not, even want, not being happy with where I was at and just wanting to do stuff. And do stuff meant anything. Like, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's go see this band. Let's go mosh for this. Let's go fucking punch this guy over there. Let's get arrested in Chicago for something fucking retarded. Like, yo, let's go. Oh, it's stuck in traffic. Let's get naked and just run across the street. You know, like, there was an anxiety and there was a rush and there was just wanting to just not be complacent with what there is. And thinking about the fest then, I mean, there wasn't a lot. And I mean, Arlington Heights... No, it was and, Hellfest. Well, no, I'm saying Arlington Heights was the first time that I saw something like that. And obviously at the time, Hellfest had been a thing that was growing. But there were certain bands that it would take a couple years, like our kind of bands, the Death Threats, the Coldest Life, the All Out Wars, the Dysphorias, that were just not seen as principal things unless it was... The Super Bowl Hardcore, which I went to in Asbury Park in 97 when Agnostic Front came back. Like, at the time, I didn't feel like well, as... That, that was going on before. I, I remember I went to it in D.C. Yeah, well, there a was couple a tra- times. Well, it was, yeah. a traveling, it was a traveling thing yeah. in 97, and then it was a 98. It was in D.C. to 2004. And then it came back to New York in 2005. But there was a... I, I felt like the kind of music that a lot of my friends were purveying in and the bands that I was booking just didn't have that voice. And obviously it's 14 years after the first Zarkor and this Zarkor has become an amalgamation of newer bands from whatever year and error that that, that fest took place. Juxtaposed with old bands that I fucking love and timeless favorites. And then obviously I'm going to throw in the Dysphorias and I'm going to throw in the Yaws Fails and give what I want to give back to my friends who have given me so much, you know, like we did agents of man last year. Like we're always trying to add the bands that made me guar. so fucking you too. We did Guar. Did you do Guar for me? Dude, I did Guar. <laughs> because you knew you were like, I'm definitely getting Chris Spear out here. If I put Guar on this year, what fucks, so. <laughs> what fucks me up on what seems to be like more of like an RIP episode. Oh my God. Yeah, is like, so Dave Brocky plays his last Philadelphia Guar show at the Zarcore. And then, Dave from Vision, yeah. I book his show, and he ends up dying three days after. It's like, uh, hardcore, obviously, we're talking about shows from 22 years ago, 21 years ago. Hardcore has taught me that some of the people that make this music and some of the people that you have those great moments with, they're not going to be here next year. So you got to, like, you have to remember every time you have good with someone so that way the next time you see them, like a Mikey Hood, we may not see Mikey Hood for another three or four years. Yeah. And it go right back to being in his mother's house in 1989 where yeah. we're knocking over porta-potties and running around Sacramento. Like, you have to remember. <laughs> oh, this. And I think that's yeah. one of the things that hardcore people do the best is, oh, I haven't seen you in 10 years. It's like, hey, I like... Ten years might have been two minutes ago to us. Yeah, you know, I'm and still just... kicking myself. By the way, that we couldn't play that Hoods Fury of Five show. Oh, it was and so sick. I couldn't even bring myself to go that night because I, I was like so upset that we couldn't play. You know, I, and I, I totally, I am really kicking myself because the reason we couldn't play ended up something that we probably could have anyway. Yeah, 
Well, so that's, that's the thing that happens. And I think yeah. uh, we've all been there where we've been asked to play a show. And you don't even want to be there, guys, not playing it that night because you're so bummed. Yeah. But as long as I'm doing shows, there will be more opportunities for stuff like that. Yeah. So, again, one more time. Thank you. You don't want to shout out social medias and stuff. You're a professional. No. No, <laughs> You're a professional. Just I, I was never a guy that wanted to get on a microphone and talk in front of people. So, no, you know I'm not an attention seeker. It's such at an all. odd. <laughs> it's such an odd uh, change because one on one or just in a group of people, you you light up and you have such great conversation, but you never try to be the forefront dude. You've always been the behind the guy, and you're probably I shit on drummers left and right. You're probably the most useful resourceful and ass-kicking drummer I think I've ever met in any band, music, whether it's metal, punk, or whatever. And I love you, man, and I just want to say thank you for being a part of this, dude. No, I love you, and I can't wait to... I can't wait to go to your shows. I can't wait to maybe play one someday again. It'll um, happen. No, I, I know. Dysphoria will never die. No. PA <laughs> hardcore like needs 60. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dude, thank you so much. No, thank you. All right. Uh, we're going to get out of here. Poolside uh, episode probably will never happen again, but this is so sick. <laughs> thank you for having me, and thanks to Cindy, yeah. your wife. And uh, thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you. For those still listening, I appreciate you checking out Chris, man. I know he doesn't run a record label like Bridge Nine, and you know he's not making sure you can see every single video that he shoots across the country and into the world like Sonny. But so much of what he does and has done is so fucking important. And I can't tell you, I mean, there's probably a good 20 to 30 bands that directly took influence from not so much the music side of Dysphoria maybe, but from the way that Chris pushed that band and just Chris being an open source person. You can call him at 7 p.m. or 2 in the afternoon, and he's going to tell you however he did, whatever it is he did. And he always had the guy's telephone number. Oh, yeah, this is the guy you got to contact. And in an internet frenzied world where social media is almost like its own high school pecking order with a lot of front men in hardcore running for class president, there really needs to be a return to the drive and the push and the hey, I got to talk about my band like no one's heard it and just push it until the end of days. And, you know, there's a million reasons why maybe Dysphoria never became the biggest band on earth, but at no point did anything they do ever get seen as a failure because they existed in some of the weirdest times for heavy metallic hardcore and they always persevered and they won crowds all over the country over in multiple times. And I'm just happy to be a part of the story. And for those who got a kick out of me kind of being more chatty and not my more stoic and quiet self, like in the first two episodes, hey man, a little bit of pizza, a little bit of soda, being around one of my favorite human beings on earth, I'm going to chat a little bit more. Just thank you for listening. Next week, we will have Madison Watkins. She is amazing not only as a graphic designer and a team player a part of the this is hardcore justice league but she runs a business called candy corpse from her home which she started from scratch and she plays bass in year of the knife and is filled in for jesus peace and candy and 
all sorts of amazing things. And her story isn't so much about a band person as it is about someone who came up in our world, DIY as fuck, and her background is incredible. And what skills she honed from school and from learning and then from trying things, she applied to a business and turned it into her full-time living. And she has a lot to say for someone who, Maddie's not even 30 years old. That's the other part of the story. And I'm going to really touch on age with that. But I mean, she's an incredible listen. And I hope you all tune in. You can check us out at www.tihcpodcast.com. We are also on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, maybe. Definitely on Stitcher. Definitely on Google Podcast. And as Chris called me and told me, definitely on TuneIn. Um, someone asked me about Pandora. We submitted. I don't. I didn't check to see if we're on. But uh, yeah, if, if, if you're listening to this through SoundCloud, but you want to listen to it on a browser that we didn't submit to, hit me up. I'll send it out. I like Stitcher. I like Spotify. You know, people love Apple. Never tried tune in. So we just stick with the what we got. Um, another week episode coming to you. No addendum this week. Thank you so much. I've chatted enough. Take care.